And we're back after a, a long overdue, long deserved actual week off. Right. Which is not a week off because we're supposed to be a bi weekly podcast. Uh, so technically that, we're right on schedule. Exactly. Yes. Uh, that podcast being the 8 4 Play podcast, the podcast hopefully you meant to be listening to, um, the only podcast about. Japan <laughs> games and Japanese games. It's not actually the only one. You can't see the asterisk. So. <laughs> Just keep saying that until it becomes true. Sooner or later, it will. Um, uh, I'm uh, your host, Mark Gaming Jesus McDonald. Uh, with me, we have a little bit different crew this week, this bye week. A uh, special guest is back, but one of our regulars is gone. We have a regular down. Uh, Hiroko's at home. She's sick today, so. Send your best wishes to her. Feel better, Hiroko. Yes, yes uh, you can send your, your well wishes to at uh, Hiroko84 if you're so inclined. Um, but the rest of us who are here and are raring to go, we have a pretty cool show, I think, this week because we actually have a lot of shit to talk about. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Including the Level 5 event we went to last week, including the Grasshopper Manufacturer event we went to last week, uh, and uh, including all the stuff we've been playing this past actually two weeks mm. um and to basically have our little mini celebration of the uh the 25th anniversary of the uh the nes the, the nintendo and mario and everything involved with that and on that note let me introduce our special guest first that is how special he is he goes first <laughs> Folks, you can't see his smiling face here but it's it's beaming uh mr kevin tsr gifford Oh, well, hello there, Mark. Oh, no one's called me TSR in approximately ten and a half years. Why is that? Why did uh, why explain to the nice people why why I call you TSR? <clears throat> well, those that don't know, uh, this has to go back all the way to the days of 1996 when I was a senior in high school and I started up a website called TSR's NES Archive. And you'd like searched on you'd searched on Lycos for like NES and didn't find like a decent. NES website and decided to start one yourself, basically? I found there was one other website that was available at the time. Mm-hmm. It was called Netsworld, and it's still up now. It's still up being updated. Wow. Uh, but mm-hmm. Nobody was... laughed at my Lycos uh, joke. Did anybody <laughs> I thought you were serious. That was a joke? It's because no. I used Webcrawler. Ask Jeeves? Would that I, have been I, better? I, I, was, I was more of an Alta Vista gentleman myself, okay, actually. Okay. I apologize. Uh, so... There was that site since September of 95, but I was the second really big NES fan site, and that started in February 1996. Okay. And I updated it until about two, the year 2000. And for people who want to see it, they can still go to, you can just, if you search for TSR, NES Archive on Google, you'll find it, or uh, atarihq.com slash TSR. That slash. is correct. So wait, you said you were in high school when you did that? How, how, how old were you at the time? Well, uh, Most people are the same age when they're in high school. Well, high school's a four-year thing. I'm I, I, I bringing this back to something. <laughs> he said he was second. a senior, right? You were a senior? I was, yes, I was a senior. So, um, so I, a... I forget exactly what day I launched a site. So I would, I would have been, <laughs> my birthday is in February, so I would have been either 17 or 18 years old. So, I see. What's the point of this Well, see, when discussion? I was in high school, my uh, sophomore and junior year, yeah. his site was pretty much me, my friend Andy, and my brother's Bible. Like, every week, uh, we would go pawn shop hunting for NES games, and we would have, like, we would check his site for, like, all the NES news, what was rare, whatever. Oh. And we were like, man, this TSR guy is fucking awesome. 
and you like, lost your virginity to his his site was <laughs> playing much. on the radio and, and you lost your virginity. Well, I, yeah, and our and our uh, two hundred uh, NES game collection is pretty much because of his site, and Long. so it's like a really big honor for me to be here oh, on the same podcast. I'm, I'm very happy video. to hear that, Mister Epperson. I, I sort of get the idea. Um, I haven't updated the site since 2000 because I moved on to other stuff, but that particular time period, to the late 1990s, if you were ever going to start collecting NES games, that was the time for it because yep. Toys R Us was blowing out all their stuff. Mm-hmm. Blockbuster was blowing out all their stuff. I used to, I, I knew where every Blockbuster video in, <laughs> in the greater Philadelphia metropolitan area was. Right. Well, let's uh, let me. I'm going to cut you off because we're that's we're going to get heavy, heavy, heavy. Yes. We're going to deep dive, as the marketing people like to say, yes. into the uh, the NES stuff. It's going to be hard to to keep off until then because you're, you're so knowledgeable. You know so much mm-hmm. shit about it, but uh, people might wonder. So why are you here? You do a lot of work uh, with us with the uh, the Mighty Eight Four. Yes, indeed. One of the reasons why <laughs> the I should Mighty say, Eight Four. The, the Mighty Eight Four. That's indeed. right. Um, as I was working on the website, I of course you know moved on over to the University of Illinois. I was studying Japanese during the time as well. Um, I studied abroad in Japan for you know about a year during college as well. I was at Chuo University. If anyone knows, I know I think the University of Illinois still has a sister program going with them. So if any uh, Illini people are listening, there's a shout out to that. Not that I've given them any money or anything like that. <laughs> the but, Chuo, what fight the fighting hams of the Chuo? Well, actually, the Chuo football team yeah. is called the Raccoons. Oh, all right, the fighting raccoons. <laughs> oh nice. yes. Very Very feisty when cornered. Oh, hell, indeed, (laughs) indeed. So, um, and then, yeah, and then you were at 1UP for a little while. Well... Uh, f- Sorry, I'm skipping ahead. Actually, uh, keep yeah. keep going. Yeah, well, yeah. F- about uh, the games. first, yeah. Um, so I was at the Classic Gaming Expo in 1998, either the first or second one that they held, and I met Jason Wilson, uh, not the Jason Wilson who worked at uh, One Up or works at One Up. I think uh, he works at Bitmob. Would, now. Yeah, works at Bitmob. Yeah, yes, he works at Bitmob, but a different Jason Wilson, a man who works for Tips and Tricks magazine, and is probably one of, if not the hugest video game collectors in the world yeah he would actually be really cool we should uh, he's a friend of, of ours as well we, oh, yeah. he'd be somebody cool to talk to as well um sometime in the next couple months on the anniversary because it is super super amazingly ridiculous doesn't knowledge. he have like every nes game basically every every, every 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 game of many consoles it's wow. like i think he has like a complete collection of nes but he's going for a complete sealed collection of any it's, oh, yeah. it's crazy it's Isn't there, aren't there pictures of this on the internet uh, you can definitely find some stuff. Yeah, I mean he's he's posted a lot and, and uh, is well known in among those circles. But anyway, so Jason Wilson liked my website, and so he recommended me. He put in a good word for me to Dan Shu, uh, who at the time was jumping ship from his his position at Electron Game Multi to work on Gamers.com, which dun, was dun, a, a very dun. oh a wonderful bubbleera.com <laughs> site, which yes. at which I met you. Mark. Mark. And I also met you too, John, I believe. Yes, that is where we, we actually, Dan and I were responsible for making the decision to hire you, which is oh, And fantastic. I remember uh, I was responsible for telling people that you looked like Steven Seagal, which you did. <laughs> you I did, most yes. certainly did. You really did look like Steven Seagal. I had my hair long at the time. I wore it in a ponytail and I had no facial hair. And so if I do that, yes, I most certainly do look like Steven Seagal. Except but now bigger. Even bigger than even Steven bigger Seagal. than you Steven could kick Seagal. his ass, yeah. Without and without all the Indian spirituality shit either, <laughs> so you have nothing to worry about there. Um, 
So I worked at Garage.com for a summer, summer 2000. I did their classic era stuff, and then I went back to college because, no offense to you to YouTube, but I knew that, that you know that ship was not going anywhere very quickly. Wait, I, I was not at Gamers.com. I was not. I don't want to have we, anything. I did Let's try to get Mark clear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I apologize, Mark. I met you at EGM. Yes. yes. I used Gamers.com to double my salary, but I never right. worked there. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, but okay, so yeah, you went back to school. I went back to school, graduated, uh, went back to San Francisco to find my fortune, Yay. and found it at GamePro of all places. That's right. Yes, worked there for a year and a half. Then I jumped ship to Ziff. I was one of the founding members of One Up, alongside Matt Leon and Sam Kennedy and uh, Jeremy Parrish and a couple other gentlemen who have since fallen off the face of the earth. But man, we did some wonderful work there. <laughs> Founding father, if you will. Yes, indeed. dot com. I think uh, left for left in I believe oh four or so because working on the online site was too stressful, mm-hmm. uh, which it often is. Eventually moved to Houston oh five to be an editor for New Type USA, Anime Magazine. Anime Magazine. Did that for three years before that company went out of business with the rest of the anime industry in the U.S. And I've been entirely working freelance ever since for the past couple of years doing yep. Japanese translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, A4 is one of my most beloved clients. Thank you very well, thank much. You. You're one of our most beloved uh, workers. Uh-huh. You're a very, very kind audience. <laughs> um, and that's basically and that is why I'm here. This is actually the first time in several years when I've been to Japan and... I was not towing my parents mm-hmm. along. I was not towing friends along. They're making me go into all these stupid <laughs> tourist traps, like right. the, like you know, like the Iga Ninja Village or Tokyo freaking Tower or some other junk like that. Right. So it's the first time I've really been able to relax in Japan. And it's been a wonderful experience. Sadly, I had to go back home tomorrow, but it's been tremendously wonderful. I bought about a zillion dollars worth of manga. Oh, good. Um, you packed up well, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about like what you've been doing here. Yes, um, this week, and yeah, for people who don't know, people are gonna learn over the next hour and a half, maybe two hours, you know, whatever, however long this thing goes. But mm. Kevin is one of the most knowledgeable guys about not only about uh, game history and uh, different uh, old school stuff, but because you read Japanese, you know a lot mm. of stuff that's not translated that's not really well known on the western mm-hmm. side and uh people who read read your different blogs and other websites over the years uh video fanky can people still find that if they google search for it uh video senki video fanky are sadly pretty well offline at the moment oh. i my current web blog is magweasel.com and i apologize yeah. for those of you who are fans of it i've not updated it lately and simply because i've been very busy not sure. just with work but also with um, you know, personal stuff, trying to think about I'm, I'm contemplating a move to Japan, and so I've been doing a lot Indeed. of work in relation to that. But I promise I'll get back on that site as soon as humanly possible. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, and we're going to try to keep you busy so that you probably don't do that, but uh, busy <laughs> Sorry, with work. Fans. Yeah, but, but anyway, yeah, so uh, you guys will get to know uh, Kevin over the next hour. We want to actually have you. Oh, I'm saying this already, uh, even though the podcast hasn't happened, but as a regular guest, we talked about it oh. for kind of a retro e segment or something, what have you, uh, every week. That would be wonderful, except you're going to have to listen to my stentorian voice through Skype. Indeed. Well, said or something like that. Well, we'll, we'll we can figure it we'll out. Work it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll see how you do it. Amazing. Via John's K tie, via his cell phone. Maybe that'll work out, yeah. But uh, we'll, we'll see how you do this week. This will be your, think of this as your live uh, screen test, all right? Oh, blind me. Where's the casting couch at? <laughs> <They're sitting laughs> Whoa. 
<laughs> All right. So anyway, uh, last week, Kevin, before you were here, hey, uh, there are other two, there oh, are two other people shit. on this podcast. Here. I thought I thought me and Kevin were just going to have some <laughs> quality time. It's going along so well. <laughs> That's right. So uh, reminding me of uh, of his existence there is uh, JJ Bad Dude Epperson. I'm bad. Say hello Sorry. to the nice people, JJ. But are you bad enough to rescue <laughs> President Ronnie from? Dragon Ninja. Was it? Was it, was <laughs> it President? Mixing, it was President Ronnie, or at least he looked like him anyway, yeah. President Ronnie, nice. Okay, and then uh, rounding out the cast uh, today, John Cream Blast Riccardi. <laughs> the Dreamcast was a Cream Blast. The Dreamcast was a Cream Blast, but uh, yeah, I don't know why we're talking Dreamcast. That just, that kind of came up yeah. today. That's for, that's another episode, Hi, another anniversary. But uh, before we get into all the NES stuff, um, last week... Kevin, before you were here, yep. Uh, as I was saying before, I was so rudely interrupted um, <laughs> <laughs> by people that I totally forgot to introduce. Um, we went oh. to Level Five had their uh, their vision event, which they have mm-hmm. once or twice a year. I don't. They yeah. feel like they have press conferences fairly often, um, but this is the big one. This is the big one, yeah. Right. They're, I think they have one in the uh, uh, fall and one in the spring. Mm. I think. I, and it, this basically, to sum it up, was so big they had credits. Their presentation had credits. Yes. Right. It was like a five-minute roll, <laughs> right? With a theme song. With a theme wow. song, yeah. Five minutes of credits at the end of it. It was two hours. Uh, it was incredibly long as game like presentations go, right? I can't remember actually a, a, a conference. They had to have a break in the middle, like a ten-minute break. That's right, because right. it was so huge. Yeah, longer Which, than most E three conferences, and eh? Actually, yeah, about Dang. twice as long as your average, almost. Yeah, I mean, well, That's it was like about the length of like a Sony conference or something. Yeah, yeah it was mm-hmm. so nice. and I mean, they did have a, a lot to talk about. I mean, they started off with stuff that we generally knew about, like uh, Nino Kuni. Um, right. They really only talked about the DS one. Yeah, they didn't have anything to say about the PS3 one other than it's in the works and coming. Right. But that makes sense because the DS one is coming out here in like a month, right? right. December. Yep. So. Yeah. so, and Nino Kuni being the uh, Level 5 Studio Ghibli um, collaboration RPG, yes. very anime look, very anime influenced. Um, the DS version comes with a actual book they the showed ma- up the magic master the magic master they showed off the packaging of that looks i'm really nice i'm very jazzed about that book because i'm well i i have a weakness for you harry know, potter no i <laughs> i should say they have a weakness for i guess what they called feelies in other words physical materials that come with video games what do you call that feelies yeah infocom was famous for those if you recall that old test adventure company yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah of, of course, course. Yeah. is that what they call them they called them feelies yes oh that's awesome really mm-hmm we got to bring that back. Feelies. You know, Cooney. With feelies. <laughs> is it a term for just anything you can feel? Just any kind of bonus item? Like that sort of thing. Well, you know, something which relates directly to the game. Right, you, right. Yes. Like the Ankh that came with uh, Ultima, what was it, 5 yeah. or well, 4? Well, yeah, the, the Ankh, the I believe, map. was 4. The cloth masks, of course, were a trademark feely for Ultima games. Right. Mm-hmm. Um Many Infocom's games were very famous for them. Like the Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy came with a crap load of stuff. It came with a microscopic space fleet inside a tiny plastic bag. <laughs> <laughs> it had a pair of Did tar- you need that to play the game, or was that just kind of a fun? No, yeah, I was, I was, yeah. A lot of them were just for fun, too, okay. of course. Okay. Yes. Well, well yes. Nina Kuni's got a really nice feely yes. in the form of a incredibly nice-looking... I mean, from what we saw, I didn't actually hold it myself. Oh, I want that book. But it looks really yeah. nice. Very, very... I, I'm, You know, as a localization company, I'm super curious to see how that's going to get localized. Not 
only because it's just going to be super expensive to print and produce and publish, but also, you know, I wonder, you know, are they going to go through the entire process of basically redesigning a book, you know, essentially? Well, so explain what the book is, what it does, like, with the game for people who, who might... Well, they showed an example at the event, right, where... They've showed, they've showed a few examples over, mm-hmm. the you know, the time that they've been talking about it. And the first one was basically, like, you know... You could look up uh, monster stats, uh, their weaknesses, uh, spells. Spells. You could see, like in the touch screen, you had to draw a pentagram, right. or what, what, probably a bad. <laughs> it probably wasn't a pentagram. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. a bad example. It is Japan. <laughs> that, it is Japan. It could be a pentagram. Here. So yeah, up until then, we like up until this recent announcement, it was basically we thought it was just going to be a spell book slash strategy guide, right? Mm. But uh, they just announced that like it's it's also kind of. I don't know. It, it it harkens back to those old adventure games where you know they would have puzzles that you'd have to look yeah. into the book to figure right. out. Right. Yeah. Right. They showed they were at an area of the game. I don't remember the exact example, but they were basically at an area of the game where they saw some hint on the screen, and then they had to open up the book and find a picture of that area. And then there was some like text on the screen or on the on the whatever on the. Uh, did you, you guys, do you know what we're talking about? Kevin's got his hand up. Um, well, I do know what you're talking. I yes. do know what you're talking about. Mm. I just wanted to point out that it's very interesting and also. It's also I apologize for continuing to use the word feelies, an old word, but <laughs> not anymore. Point, we're bringing it back. So yeah, but feely it, baby. It's back now. But in its own way, since you kind of need the book to play the game, then am I right? It sounds like yeah, it. yeah. right. It's copy it, protection. Well, actually, case, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. You know, co- you know, piracy is a yes. big deal with the DS, of course. Right, especially with the DS. Right. It has become that. Yeah, so it is It is kind of copy protection. Yeah. Um, I'd be curious if you need the book or if the book is just sort of helps you. No. You know what I mean? Well, the, the, the example that they gave was, like, you're in this dream world. And this dream, like, it's well, that's really... that's right. You needed the password. It's, like, gorgeous. You know, like, it's all this pencil-drawn art that you're walking on storybook. And the uh, the background that you're walking on in the dreamland is uh, an, a replica of a picture that's in the book. Mm. And so there's this treasure chest in the dreamland, and to open it, you have to look in the book. There's like it gives you a riddle, and then you solve the riddle by you know looking at the picture for a clue. And then in this instance, it was like these two rocks, and on the rocks there were these runes. Right. And the game has its own alphabet, basically. Right. And in order to read the runes, you had to look in another page of the book to find out what those were. And then when you figure out the puzzle, you put it in the game and then the treasure chest opens and hearing it it sounds really annoying but seeing it <laughs> I mean, but i mean but but just for people hearing this like god damn it i have to flip back and forth in a book but but in practice it actually seemed cool right yeah. i mean it's, yeah. it, it has it gives us this like extra taste of adventure sure it's neat because you know imagine having your ds in one hand this book in the other one it kind of reminds me of the good old days of super uh nes rpgs where you would play with a controller in one hand and the you know sort of have the strategy guide on your right hand. <laughs> I'm left-handed, so I'd use it on my right hand. Um, I never do that. Actually, Fantasy Star Two came with a hint book, and I just never looked at it. Really, little did I know, like yeah, oh, you basically hell, you needed, needed that. that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> God damn it, there that was book one. wasn't like they wanted to publish it. That book was they had to publish it. <laughs> exactly. They're like, what the? F-? Uh, anyway, so uh, we digress. So there's yeah, a lot it of looks other, really good. Yeah, it, it does look really good. Super it, excited to play it. We'll definitely talk about it a yes. bunch once it's out. We'll talk about it here. It comes out. Uh, what is it? Early next month or yeah, December ninth, I believe. Something or December something. It's early December. Yeah. Okay. And um, so, but yeah, there's a lot of other uh, stuff to actually get through. Let's yes. get through the um, the other little games um, first, like Mystery Room, basically like a clue kind of yeah, like yeah, game. Yeah. Sort of seemed like like it's uh, part of that Atom- Atomania series, Atomania, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Basically, the game is you know you, there are these two guys locked in a room and they have to look at uh, pictures from crime scenes and stuff like that. 
and uh, you you know you in the picture the pictures are empty and then you insert people that are you're suspicious of or you know Mr. what Green weapons they use with yeah. the candlestick basically it's right, right 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 and I mean it has a following or whatever but honestly that's probably the least interesting of everything we saw there it's just it's got a bit of a following it's here a in Japan it's a pretty cool game yeah it's, it's game. Certainly I really I really love level fives you know brain teasing type of games yeah, yeah. so. I'm 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 all jazzed for it. Well, sticking on the less interesting stuff, let's just put it that way. Sure, from the sure. conference. Oh, oh snap! Oh, <laughs> um, uh, little Ballers, Lil, I, I, which I think should be called Lil Little Battlers, which to me looks like Pokemon for people who are probably two years older. What JJ would call a baby game? Come on, for babies. We got some angry fan mail. JJ for calling Kirby a baby game. Let's, let's not digress, though. All but right. the thing about... Let's keep on sure. topic here. So the, the PSP, uh, the Little Battlers game, is basically... Uh, what do you call those robots that you build here? Um, Gumpra. Uh, Gumpra. Yeah, Gumbra. but what do you, in English that people can understand what we're talking about? I think about. that's what they oh. call them in America, too. Uh, yeah, really? Plastic, yeah. plastic models. Okay, so they're basically plastic models. models that you put models. together. You take all the pieces out of like the plastic kit, you break them off, and then you put them together. And this mm-hmm. is a game based on that. In fact, the game comes with one packed in uh, of, of one of the robots. It's Poker Robots. <laughs> they were playing that up in... Exactly. Actually, it's, it's going to be a theme. It's another feely, um, if <laughs> <Right>. you will. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a theme of the Level 5 conferences that pretty much everything they showed had at least one of the following. It had like an anime. It had a comic. It had a toy. It had a book. It had, a, it had some kind of other media tie-in, which is one of the things that I think Level 5 is really doing great for the Absolutely. Japanese market. And I, I would like to people to do more effectively in the Western market. You see some people oh, no toying doubt. with it. Well, you see a lot more, for example, special editions these days in the U.S. market. Sure, sure. Most of, most of the big like AAA titles these days have special editions, which come from with all sorts of crazy crap like New Vegas and all that. Right, but I'm but I'm I'm talking like so you know Dead Space doing it with like the comics or the movie prequel. Mm. Yeah, they call it like cross out. media here, like basically media right. crossover stuff. Like you've got an anime, you've media got a comic book, you've got all this different stuff. So yeah, sorry, talked over. <laughs> it's okay. How dare you? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically the, the game is like you're making these little model kits and then basically kind of fighting them against other kids little uh, uh, robots that yes. they're making yeah, the actual fighting in the oh, I didn't play it we could have stuck around and played it but the lines were too long but the actual fighting looked like um, you know Virtual On or something right like kind of robots going at it on a it battlefield it was like a menu based Virtual On I think yeah so you don't I, have I, free I, control I, I don't remember exactly I saw in the brief clip they showed in the show oh, I know this is very interesting looked more actiony yeah it looked actiony but when I saw screenshots I saw like menus okay well anyway yeah right. so the um, that was uh, yeah, a PSP game aimed maybe a little older. It, it it definitely seemed to kind of have a Pokemon kind of collecting vibe yeah. to it, though. I have to as say well. the models themselves looked really cool. Like I'm not, I've never been into models, but I know it's huge here. The, the mm. thing is about level five. This is probably a good point to mention is, is they seem really adept at like you know targeting into like the things that Japanese kids grew up with and love. You know what I mean? Yeah. They've got their models and their anime and all this stuff and like. That is, I think, genius. Like there is a, I think there's a chance that this game could become really huge in Japan. It's kind of weird to me that it's on PSP. Like the market is sort of, you know, kind of dying down. There's lots of piracy. It well, seems perfect at, for at, 3ds. At, but... the, at the same time, you know, I've just noticed this in the week that I've been here. You're on the train. What console do people have on the train? Right, a lot of people have PSPs. I've, yeah. not, I've not seen nearly as many DSs as I've seen PSPs. That's interesting. I, I see them both, but I see more PSPs than I see yeah. DSs. Yeah. But, so anyway, ju- just to keep moving, we've got sure, a lot, sure. yeah, lot of yeah. stuff to get through. We mm-hmm. haven't even gotten to the big exciting stuff yet, but just to round out the rest of the stuff, Fantasy Life, which a lot of people probably have never heard of, looked to me as somebody like not really paying attention 
uh, kind of like a <laughs> bunch of animal cro- a little, some Animal Crossing kind of vibe to we it. We still don't know much about the game. Like they, the information that they gave out at the show was pretty much exactly <clears> the same <throat> as when they first announced it. Like, well, a year developed and a half ago. by Brown- Brownie Brown, Brown right. the developers of Mother Three, which it is, is Earthbound sequel, and uh, some other games. Looks a bit like it too. It does. Well, it, Not it, it used to look a lot more oh. like it. So basically, oh, okay. the one, uh, the okay. big thing about that game, they revealed it last year as well but mm. this year last year it was 2d and it looked an awful lot like earthbound it, yeah. right. now it's completely it's it's been moved to the 3ds and it's mm. it's all 3d now it looks you know I, well some people say it looks better before but i you know it looks a lot more enhanced or whatever but it's uh the big thing about that is uh nobuo imatsu is doing the music imatsu yep. from uh, final yeah. fantasy Yep. Uh, apparently, Amano Yoshitaka is doing the like image design. You couldn't yeah. tell that, no but way. he's the guy who did the image art for Final Fantasy. Yeah, oh. all the logos and Which stuff. Which is weird because the, the it looks nothing like his style. I mean, he and also did. Gotcha I'm guessing Man he's just stuff. doing like the logo or the box art or something. Yeah. But it, did, uh, it, did, it looked like Animal Crossing to me. I mean, did it not? Am I the only one? No. Well, I mean, it's apparently supposed to be an RPG. So right. I, it, do, yeah. it looks like it is a fantasy. Like it is a life simulator. I think. Like like, but it's probably got more. I don't know. RPG I mean, elements. to some extent, uh, what's the name of that Monster Hunter uh, Pokemon? I do my game. Yeah, yeah the Monster Hunter Village game. That, it, it, that has a lot of action RPG aspects to it as well. Maybe kind of going along the same lines. Right. So. It's like somewhere between Animal Crossing and a real action RPG, somewhere in the middle. Mm. And then another uh, game, which is uh, just like pure business. Um, people only anime fans, though, uh, you can uh, tell us all about uh, this one. There, Kevin, but um, the uh, Kaba. Kabajopi. Uh, Kabajopi. Kabajopi. Yeah, which uh, nah. basically explain to people what the hell that is. Well, okay. Well, first off, I should probably define Kabajo. Kabajo is short for. Uh, well, Cabaret. Yeah, Cabaret Ojo-sama. Right. Well, you know, basically refer to a girl who works at a Cabaret club. A whore. Which in <laughs> she doesn't. Slut, they don't. They don't. No they don't have sex. No, no, it's like uh, it's like the hostess clubs in Yakuza, right? right? I mean, basically, yes. kind of for for those who have played the Yakuza games. Similar. Hot sluts. Yeah. Continue. <laughs> Hot sluts. And um, this game, Kabajopi, is yeah. uh, somewhat tongue in cheek simulation mm-hmm. of what it's like to be one of these girls. Except also the customers that you're entertaining happen to be you know famous uh, anime what? characters. What? You know, crazy <laughs> like Lupin the third yes. and uh, who else there was a bunch of them I offhand yeah. Yeah. tomorrow joe um oh, the other I'm one not. people would know were um jj help me out here i'm trying to think there's a uh, enemy not the strong suit laughing salesman was in there. oh i love that show um a couple other people people would recognize but anyway yeah it's got a bunch of Lupin famous characters would be the one that was yeah, for sure. Sure. sure yeah and was that, that oh was i so... think kenshiro from uh, fist of the north stars oh, also really? in there. Uh, i think in an earlier update not in the newest one but um. so that's a 3ds game right it is now, uh, yeah. It, it, used to be, well, it, it has yeah, a following on cell too. phones. Right, right, right. It looks like a cell phone game, to be honest. Very much. Um, yeah. But okay. that's another game that's probably going to be huge here. Uh, like, they're right. like really zeroing in on what Japanese people like. They'll make a profit anyway. It will never, sure. never even happen overseas, but if it did, it wouldn't fly. So the two games that got uh, a bunch of attention, um, one was Time Travelers. That game looks awesome yeah. to me. Yeah. Which, what does it look like to you? So there's a there's a trailer that they showed and that's up on the web um, that show you you can see it. It looks like a little bit of like psychological. There's a little bit of horror aspect mm. in there. There's a little bit of like sci-fi. Um, a little bit of like kind of a Japanese uh, horror, I guess, feel um, mm. at, to it. Um, it looks like 
I'm guessing just like an adventure game. I mean, it was just really cut yeah. Scenes. It looks it looks like I mean the guy who wrote it is known for his adventure games. Um, who wrote it? Jiro Ishii, you know the oh guy from, the yes. Fortune Wake guy, right? Yes, which course. got four famously got four famously in Japan got four tens in Famitsu, a kind of adventure game. Why the well, old Chunsoft um, sound novel adventures? These are like mm. basically like kind of the latest of latest evolution of that. I guess um, we're going to talk about those uh, a little bit when we talk about what we're playing this week because Kevin picked up four two eight. Oh, nice! This okay. week and was playing. Uh, well, that's this is his next game, right? I believe after yes, right. four two eight. Oh, tremendous! And uh, you know he's it's known for basically very story driven you know adventure games. Uh, but this time you know usually there are a lot of still graphics or like you know FMV clips and things. But this one actually is using in game engine. Like the engine, real basically time. real time events, and it it looked quite good. Like I'm actually really interesting. The the theme was interesting too. It's like a there was a girl on the train mm-hmm. on the subway train, and then like all of a sudden like the time started. Cl- uh, there was like a mysterious guy behind her, and the clock started going down. And the next thing we know, it, apparently she jumped through time or something. Right. Well, the interesting part of the trailer was right right, right before end, right? right before you know he finishes the countdown, and like on the bottom screen it right. shows you like, get a do choice. you want to turn around or do you, you know, right. do you not turn around. And I think that may be a little bit of a hint of what the gameplay is going to be like, this kind of split right. second, second mm-hmm. decision. Maybe a little bit like a, a, a Heavy Rain. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's a really good way. No, I think that's or probably a, the closest equivalent yeah. of a recent modern game yeah. or to what these games are like. I mean, the right. Indigo Prophecy? Yeah, it's based, same basic Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, and, and we're, we're kind of guessing, right? I mean, that could right. that's potentially the, right. just be like a special... But his games get huge, like, you know, the praise in Japan, so there's definitely definitely something to look forward to. I and, think that uh, was my most uh, mm-hmm. exciting game. He, at Hino the, made a at point the at the end of his uh, spiel about this game. is like, you know, he really respects uh, Jiro Ishii, and he was like, man, they get all these critical acclaim, and, you know, hardcore fans really love them, but they never got the sales that they deserve. Right. So he's right. like, I'm making it a point to make sure this game is a success. Awesome. And Hino, for those of you don't know is the president of level five akihiro hino yes um i um another interesting part of this is that uh you know i'm talking about 428 to some extent 428 is more of a standard sound novel type of thing and mm-hmm. one of the things that annoyed jiro ishii about that is that people would up you know people would just upload gameplay videos of walkthroughs of 428 onto niko doga and the other video sites like that japanese youtube basically yes mm-hmm. and the way that Ishii saw it. It's basically like pirating the game. If you just view that, if you view that video, then you have no reason to buy the game. Right. Well, and I so would... Time Travelers is you know perhaps some response to that. If you know what I mean. Right. There's a bit more gameplay to it. Right. So to speak. Right. Well, and we'll get into. Uh, why don't we? Um, I was going to get into it later, but just for people, real quick, when you say sound novel, that means something in Japan. It doesn't mean anything to anybody in America. Yeah. So yeah. Just real fast, like one sent, uh, one or two sentences. Like, can you explain what that kind of game is here that genre that exists here that's actually kind of popular that just had never made it to america for whatever reason certainly a sound novel is if you remember the old choose your own adventure games mm-hmm. where you would have you know you, you would you would read a story and then you would have uh, you would be asked to make a decision here or there sound novels are basically like that it said because they're video games they take advantage of visual and sound technology to really make it more atmospheric to put you into the game. But it was still primarily text. Still primarily text. If you were to localize that, you would basically say interactive novel, I think. I yes. mean, that's essentially what it is. If yeah. you if you remember, the there were certain sections in Near, which mm-hmm. were kind of like sound novels, certain sections in Lost Odyssey on the Xbox 360, which were kind of like sound novels. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Uh, so basically, yeah, putting up a YouTube video is basically like putting up a video of somebody reading your book. In other words, right, right, which right. is pirating it. So, yeah. um, so or another game where there's no question to whether or not it's going to be successful or people <laughs> are interested in it, the big one, the surprise they kept to the end, 
Professor Layton versus Phoenix Wright. You can call it Professor right. Layton versus Ace, Ace Attorney, Attorney, whatever. whatever. Call it that series. Yeah. They say versus, but they certainly seem to be working together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a very Japanese thing, I think. Kind yeah. of Marvel versus you know, Capcom. Yeah, right. It was Capcom fashion. It just basically means crossover, but yeah. yeah. Two that huge was, series, both mega huge in yeah. Japan. Both both have They're definite both, cult followings. I mean, not, maybe bigger than cult followings. Layton's Layton, bigger than cult for sure. Yeah. Professor Layton sold really well. Yeah, right. and plus, which in terms America. of in terms of the Ace Attorney series, this is kind of the return mm-hmm. of Phoenix Wright. Yep, right. As well. He's been gone for a while, and exactly. he was definitely the most popular. So, and that was an awesome trailer. Like they yeah. cut that. Really I am well. super excited for that game because <laughs> yes. those are two series I happen to really like. And mm-hmm. I mean, to have them both together is just like your chocolate and peanut butter. I right put there. up I put up a video while we were there. So so uh, Justin, there's there's coverage of this whole thing up on uh, OneUp.com. Um, Jon Snow wrote up some nice stuff uh, the day after. JJ did a great job live blogging mm-hmm. it. Thanks. Pictures and videos by <laughs> myself, uh, but I, I did a video of that, just like a thirty-second crappy iPhone, <laughs> quick and dirty from the video side, yeah. from yeah from off center of the Professor Layton versus Phoenix Wright, and but it did show Professor Layton show Phoenix Wright, so people knew right. it was real. And the official video is out now; you can see it uh, on One Up or, or anywhere. But it basically like it got. Like, went nuts on youtube it got like two hundred thirty thousand views mm-hmm. and yet i was i was uh kind of happy kind of sad to see the comments on youtube are still like the ass end of the internet like yeah. the worst ghetto of yes. the internet because when worst. you set up a youtube account and i just did this you get an email automatically every time somebody comments oh yeah you poor thing and this yeah. video got a thousand comments so i checked my email just randomly afterwards and it's like you got 60 emails you got 70 emails you got 80 emails. like Literally every five minutes, I was getting sixty or seventy emails, and uh, the comments were: "This is the highest rated comment on the video right now." Okay, okay? a thousand comments, two hundred thirty thousand people have seen this video. The current highest rated comments, with I think like eleven things, are: "It's from uh, somebody objection able chi one is the the user mm-hmm. uh, hacker alias uh, of this person." <laughs> Quote. I saw this video and I jizzed in my pants. <laughs> jizzed in my pants is in all caps. <laughs> and that's the number one comment. Yes. And it was funny because I was I was showing someone, I was showing my girlfriend, I was just randomly choosing a comment. I'm like, here, I'll just choose one. I'm like, here's how bad they are. Just randomly choose one. There's another one. Oh my God, I'm a girl and I jizzed in my pants <laughs> is another one. I'm typing this through tears right now. There's half of them are about jizzing in their pants. And what is that? That, that is, yeah, yeah, kids today. If it takes a Japanese lawyer in a business suit to make you jizz in your pants, you should probably seek some uh, psychiatric help. Indeed, indeed. Um, also, uh, so that, it's super a, excited about that game. Super yeah. excited, and so and so is yeah, so is everybody. They didn't really show anything of gameplay. It was all kind of anime scenes. It's kind of yeah. like the Professor Layton games now when they show them. Right, they yeah. almost yeah. always just show right. mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. a feeling for the plot. Um, we didn't talk really about that, but they showed the next um, the next Layton game for Layton 3DS game as well. Yeah, which was at E3 in, in the earlier form. It was quite different this time, <clears throat> yeah, but it's coming along. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it looks, the, looks good. Uh, the uh, town scenes where you know you're poking around at things. It's 3D now, which is really right, cool right. And apparently, like when Layton points his finger, it's going to be 3D. That right? is going to yeah. He's going to be like, just, oh yeah the. Poke- yeah, the bits when you solve a puzzle, the, the dun, 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 right, like that. Right, oh, it's exactly. freaky. Well, and of course, then when Phoenix Wright does objection, like, that's got to be right, 3D, right? That's got to be the big one. You're yeah, going to be flinching. So, um, so uh, then, later in the week, uh, mm-hmm. we all, four of us, were there for this one. I, the, I wasn't there, actually. Oh, right. I was working. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. I Hiroko was there. Was there, there sadly, but... Uh, 
anyway, the uh, Grasshopper, Hoppers 4, Grasshopper does these events every once in a while. They're called yes. Hoppers. One of them that probably got the most attention was, I forget if it was two or three, but it was uh, Kojima was there. No, that was two, I think. Right, talking right. Talking with mm. Suda and was Mikami, I think, um, yeah, at the yeah. time. It was, it was like a round table. But, um, so this one was Hopper's four. And uh, Kevin, you wrote it up for for one up. You're very nice, oh, right? Up there with did. pictures. It is including pictures of a of the HR woman. Oh, um, they're sec- the sexiest HR lady ever. <laughs> I wish I worked at Grasshopper. I tell you what. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, Hoppers were four, four. You know, Hoppers four began. Well, I should say that the event was primarily held to commemorate the Japan launch of No More Heroes two. Which right. Does People struggle. are rightly probably surprised to hear because yeah. No More Heroes two is came out in the US came on January. No More Heroes one actually came out first in Japan, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Two, they weren't. I don't think they were planning to release in Japan, and then at, at some all. point, yeah, they just yeah. decided to bring it yeah, out. Yeah, Marvelous finally got around to putting it out or you know publishing it at this point, um, and so they're you know, sort of releasing to commemorate that. And so you know, there are a lot of events. The the pre you know before they actually began uh, the event, you know, there was a DJ up on the stage. Uh, this was held at a nightclub in Tokyo, right? Um, and the DJ played for a little while, and then eventually this uh, this lady showed up on stage, and she was a uh, I'll be darned if she wasn't a you know a, a burlesque uh, dancer oh, oh, of some sort. Uh, what? Uh, uh. Yeah. Oh yeah, I couldn't believe it. My my Texan soul was shocked. <laughs> Boy, I tell you what. Um, but you yet you watched and you took pictures. And yet I watched. I took your, pictures. Yes, outrage. Had to, had to stop at the bathroom for about half an hour afterwards. Oh my god! <laughs> this is um, a family podcast, Mister Gifford. Oh, I apologize. Family Mark. podcast yeah, for the yeah, nice yeah. people. I'll, I'll, I'll never talk about the, my bathroom experiences again. <laughs> so so what what else happened at the at Hoppers after the very nice lady took her clothes off? <laughs> well, it cannot be it cannot be denied that the president of Grasshopper, a man named Goichi Suda, Suda Fifty One. Yes. Mm-hmm. It cannot be denied that he certainly enjoys uh, Grasshopper's reputation as kind of, dare I say, a bad boy in the realm of Japanese developers. There are very few Japanese developers that have as much of a public image in the eye of right, Japanese people right. as Grasshopper, despite the fact that you know they haven't really put out a heck of a lot this particular year. Or anything right. that's sold particularly or, well sold particularly in Japan. Well either. But darn if, darn if Suda does not have, you know, Suda's comments have a lot of power in this industry. Yeah. And he came out, uh, when they in- finally introduced Suda to the stage, he came out to the song uh, Real American. That was awesome. That was which, great, uh, yeah. If you aren't familiar with the song, let me sing it for you. <laughs> I am a real American. Wait, okay, so <laughs> you, can, and you can find that on, actually, maybe if you YouTube search for Hulk Hogan uh, intro, might be your best way to experience it, because that was exactly what he was mimicking, right? He even did the yes, theatrical Cool. He did. I right, can't hear the, you to the left yes. and to the right. He the copied Hulk Hogan's moves, and it yeah. was it the was, crowd was into it. Did he, oh, yeah. it. did he rip his shirt off? He no. Did not. Oh yeah. God, that would have been perfect. Yeah, so yeah. Oh, God, that. yeah, yeah. Yeah, for that next time to miss that detail. You know that the, how he did that though, Hulk Hogan, right? He had all the holes in the back. I don't know. It's oh yeah, it was like ready to be ripped. It's not hard to do. You might as well be telling me that Mickey Mouse. There's like a little guy inside of Mickey Mouse. Well, yeah. Well, Santa Claus is fake. What? There's no God. Darn. Darth Vader's Luke's. Well, I won't say. So that. Suda showed up. Um, you know, he was, and he he had a couple of different talking events. One was talking about the movie El Topo, which is a 1970 Western film produced mm. in Mexico, uh, fil- a film that got a lot of influence from from No More Heroes because it copies the basic concept of the hero is asked by his girlfriend to become the best gunman in the world, mm-hmm. and so he. 
yeah, kills all the other gunmen, gunmen in order to do that. It's basically that, and they showed the clip from Jackass, I think it was Jackass the movie, where they yep. put the alligator on Johnny Knoxville's nipple, and he's wearing those sunglasses and has the <laughs> hair, and he looks exactly like Giant Travis Nos- Touchdown. Oh, right, John, right. Yeah, Johnny Knoxville looks a hell of a lot of Travis Touchdown now that, now that I look at him you know, uh, should, side by side. Yeah, we should say it the other way around. Travis yeah. Touchdown looks a hell I mean, it was obvious right, at yeah. the time that it was a copy-off, but when you mm. see that exact clip, it's like, wow, that's mm-hmm. like... Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yep, exactly. but Suda was not the only attraction to that party. Of yep. course, one of the other attractions, um, if you've been following Japan industry news, you would know that Grasshopper, over the past maybe three months or so, have had a lot of big-name hires right. in the industry. Right, right. Um, they had uh, Yoshihiro Wada, uh, from, who was formerly a big up, up-and-up guy at Marvelous, the creator of the Harvest Moon series. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had Kazutoshi Iida. Who is a very well known independent freelance developer? He did Doshin the Giant. He did um, Tales of Aquanauts Holiday. Aquanauts Holiday. Uh, was Tale of the Sun. Yeah. Oh, you know your old PlayStation games pretty well, <laughs> your Art Dink games. Um, <laughs> and most famously in the US, Akira Yamaoka, the you know, musician, very well known musician for the Silent Hill series, occasional producer for the Silent Hill series, yep. or is it director? Yeah. One of the two. Also did a lot of crazy Dance Dance Revolution songs. And Beat Mania, yeah. yeah. And good friend of 8-4. That's right. Ah, uh, yes. tremendous. Another good friend. Don't be jealous, Kevin. <laughs> and, um, oh, thank you. And what Yamaoka did for this show is, uh, you know, he is the guitarist for a band, basically an internal Grasshopper manufacturer band. They call it Grasshopper D Manufacturer. Right. Uh, their first gig was actually at the Microsoft party at uh, Tokyo Game Show Which, this year. John, you were at. I was there, yes. Right. yes. And do they rock there as much as they rock uh, here? <laughs> yeah, I would say yes. They rocked yes. about the same level that they rock. <laughs> oh, they certainly ro- they rocked at Hoppers 4, I'll tell you what. How um, hard did they rock the house, Kevin? I'll tell you how hard they rocked. They rocked it so hard. They started out with a death metal version of of uh, Blitzkrieg Bop from the, by the Ramones. That's right. If you remember yes. the show, you know, hey, ho, let's go and all that sort of thing. Yep, yep. And they kept on going with more and more stuff. And man, uh, whoever the uh, man is that does that death metal voice, boy, he has a lot of it. He has a lot of add to it. Tell you what, yeah, uh, Yamoka's a pretty good guitarist too. Yep, Yamoka was was doing the whole rock god thing. He had his leg up on the on the amplifier or what have you. Yamoka's amazing. Cool. He yeah. is really good live. We saw him play with uh, Nile Rodgers, um, the famous producer, a few uh, mm-hmm. months back in right. uh, at the Blue Note in Tokyo, and it was just ridiculous. Yeah, he's so good. And uh, the drummer was not bad, too. Actually, the drummer, I don't know. The drummer is actually the director of Shadows of the Damned. So um, yeah. they basically have, Shadows like, all internal guys in their little band. And I should also note that Ida, Ida was the other guitarist in the band. Uh, Ida, Ida was actually the busiest man in that evening because he did that set with Grasshopper D Manufacturer. And then he did another set immediately afterwards with... Um, I already forget what it was at this point. Some rapper dude who... Uh, and nobody cares. Oh, yeah, yeah, the band that did the <laughs> opening and closing uh, themes for uh, No More Heroes 2, actually. Oh, and they, oh, okay. they performed some songs, one of which uh, 8-4 actually worked on. Yeah, earlier no- on in the night, there was a woman singing a, couple, a song from No More Heroes, and then uh, no the song 2. from No More Heroes 2, which we wrote the lyrics to, 8-4, uh, and one of our uh, guys wrote the lyrics to, uh, Philistine, and uh, yeah, that was pretty cool. Veina Hibiki was her name, ah. the, the lady that sung those songs. It was very nice, by the way. So, and uh, just to, to, side note, also in Grasshopper News, they released an image in the uh, Famitsu this week. I have a note of their of their new game. It's just one image of. Uh, Is that the thing with Kadokawa? Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, one of the big pieces of Japanese news this previous week was that Kadokawa, Kadokawa Games um, 
which up until now had only produced you know a couple of girl games and the DS and DS version of RPG Maker, basically. Didn't Didn't they they do the Lunar games back in the day too? Like I think they did the remakes on PlayStation Uh, and Saturn. Yeah, yeah, that sounds. I mean, that was a long time ago, but it's you know it's it's kind of a convoluted mix of parent and child companies of sure, sure. Um, But apparently, they really ran me up now. And so they've announced a couple of new projects. Uh, one is from Grasshopper Manufacturer, and mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, unfortunately, not a heck of a lot of details were really announced from that. But apart from Sue saying, "Oh, it'd be, you know, it's going to be a very grasshoppery type of game, very action oriented, very cool." You can uh, find just real fast. There's one image that they release of it uh, for people who didn't see it. It mm-hmm. looks like a woman. It's like a silhouette of a woman's mouth licking a uh, very large lollipop oh yeah um, with the grasshopper symbol on the lollipop it made me jizz my pants really (laughs) you had to go to the bathroom uh you're getting less subtle as this podcast (laughs) is going on you can just say i we might need to take a break okay so yeah what uh what else there were the other companies the other other, well the other game that they announced was a company being uh was a game being uh developed by uh prope or prope oh right uh yuji naka's new company is that prope or is it prope it's prope in katakana is prope okay Let's uh, just get that straight. So is this supposed to be like propeller, then? I, I would imagine it means like propel or something. For you know, the Japanese love to take the English words and make fancy things out of them. It just I, looks like yeah. it always looks like prope to me. Yeah, it's, un- it's an unfortunate. Really. Name, gotta, but gotta, you know, they got put they got put an accent mark um, on top of that second on the second <laughs> e. Prope, like and the interesting thing was, uh, like with Suda's game, they showed only one screenshot, and I'll be darned if this screenshot didn't look lobus. Uh, more than a little bit like Knights. And oh, really? Naka actually mentioned in the little blurb that he wrote for Famitsu, um, this is somewhat out of context, but he basically said, you know, if I were still a Sega, maybe I would have used this gameplay concept for Knights too. <laughs> really? I, I, I had that laugh, but you know. Oh, he didn't? Yeah, I wasn't actually in the <laughs> You didn't have the evil laugh? That makes he me might. very happy. I, like, well. I know that Yuji Naka hasn't done anything remarkable in the past 10 years or so, but... Yeah, I liked Ivy the Kiwi. Yeah, Ivy the Kiwi, I, I would say um, I, I'd be more excited if Knights wasn't one of the most overrated games. Uh, <laughs> all right, this podcast all is over. Shutting uh, it down. <laughs> well, no, hey, Yuji Naka is a friend of 8-4, so it's all good. We'll see what happens. Absolutely. But, yeah. I, we, we wish him the Fence best. Star Online is the best thing ever. Star Online is awesome. Yeah. Yes. Uh, okay. So um, also awesome are all the games we've been playing. How do you like that? Segway. Um, all the games <laughs> we've been playing these last two weeks. Yes, um, this is our first podcast that's taken two weeks to actually really actually been two weeks. Two since weeks the last in one, the yeah. making, and a lot has happened yeah. in these two weeks. A lot has happened. People have actually been playing games uh, around here. Mm-hmm. So um, why don't we take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, among others, La Mulana, Costume Quest, Vanquish. Maybe getting a real opinion out of Kirby's Epic Yarn. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> um, game dev story on the iPhone. God forbid. We're yes. talking about fucking iPhone games. <laughs> uh, and other assorted things that uh, adventures of Mr. Kevin Gifford uh, while he's been in here in Japan. Dun, so uh, dun, stick around. Dun, we'll be right dun, back. Dun, 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 Beep, boop. <laughs> I gotta go to the bathroom real quick. <laughs>
and we're back and now we're actually talking about the games we have been playing as opposed to seeing so um or in john's case finishing Mm. uh since our last podcast we could just hit this one real quick because you talked about it too much but you finished castlevania i did finish castlevania a quick uh verdict a lot of people talking about the ending without spoiling anything it was a crazy ending did you like it or not oh i liked it it's very bold and different it's not what people are expecting but i i don't know uh where they're going we'll see where they're going from here overall verdict on the game overall verdict was it is a game worth playing it is not as castlevania as i would have liked it to be and i and it also is enough it is different enough from castlevania that i i feel like i don't want them to stay this like this is fine but i want them to come back to the old castlevania as well Uh uh-huh uh, so we'll see, but it's definitely worth checking out. Long game too; it took me like twenty and somewhat hours, twenty oh, hours yeah. and like a half. Or I thought something. it was yeah. a bunch shorter than that. Oh no, no, oh, you yeah. would think that from from people comparing it to like your Gods of War yeah. and stuff like that. But yeah. that's what everybody seems to think. Like, yeah. oh, I thought the game was first. End. The, it's like uh, twelve to eleven or twelve chapters. The first two chapters were a bit of a drag. Then it got really good for a bunch of chapters. And the last two chapters, kind of a drag again. One level in there made me want to throw my PlayStation out the window. Is I that was the one I saw you dying on over and over? Uh, and it was over. the one leading up to that yeah okay. but it was just really it seemed like it wasn't tested or something they were just it was hard but um but basically for the most part it was a really really cool game so. uh the other game that you finished uh the just this weekend costume quest a lot of people are talking about yes yeah yeah, yeah. finds new turn-based rpg for xbox live and psn yeah. so a lot of people are talking about this uh right now what'd you what'd you think tell tell people real quick about what the game is in case you haven't heard it's about it it's a downloadable turn-based rpg basically the theme is halloween that's why it's released mm. now it's right. uh in uh you know though it's a, basically a story about um rescue you you pick you choose to play as a boy or a girl twins and i think they're twins they're brother and sister anyway and uh you basically i, I want whoever you pick you have to basically save the other one basically it's a quest to save your you know sibling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh it was really fun it's really cute it had that kind of trademark double fine humor throughout um mm-hmm. Uh, lots of funny dialogue and, and you know, kind of interesting um, situations. But the overall game, it's a $15 game. To be totally honest, I don't know that it's $15 of content. I mean, I Oof. beat the game in about five hours. No, I'm not dogging it. I actually really enjoyed it. But I just felt like there was, you know, it's it's got this interesting sort of Super Mario RPG-like turn-based battle system where... You collect costumes. That's one of the big things. It's a costume quest, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, different yeah. Halloween costumes. You've got like your you're, nin- your you're ninja. these little kids. Yeah, you're these little kids. You're trick or treating okay. on Halloween night. You're trick or treating. You go around collecting candy and getting costumes. And um, the different costumes give you different powers in battle. So you have like a like kind of a giant transformer like robot who has like a missile barrage, and you have like a ninja who can like uh, cloak a, one of your partners so they don't get hit the next round. Like different you know moves. Cool. Very cool, interesting stuff. And the battles themselves are Super Mario. RPG like so like uh you know every every costume has its own thing some of them are the same but like you know you might have to like time it time your button press at the exact point to get a critical hit or anytime the enemy swings at you usually you have to press a button to try and decrease the damage by hitting it at the right time sounds very Mario RPG very or much, hitting yeah. it a million times to right to but tap the button a few times or up. spin the analog stick to fill up your bar like it's stuff like that it's really cool and also humor is a big part in it like Mario RPG right it's not exactly taking itself seriously. right no it's funny it's it's one of the few games I would say recently where I laughed out loud like several times it gives a funny game i mean oh. you kind of expect that from double fine that's kind of what they're known for right? so i'm surprised and you say it's you five hours but i'm surprised to hear you say i think we have a different idea about what um i mean we should like total disclosure you think that like 
fifteen dollar games are. You're like generally against fifteen dollar. I mean, games. In, like I just downloadable feel like, games. You know, well, the thing is, I mean, not to go too much into this because this is a huge debate carried on by a lot of people. But you know, I feel like a lot of games in the beginning of the Xbox and PSN era, there were a lot of quality content filled games that came out for 10 bucks and then they started going up to 15 bucks and like i feel like the content hasn't really changed much it's just like the price went up so i still feel like compared to what we can get a lot of the older stuff i feel like 15 dollars is a lot to pay for a game that takes five or six hours to beat but oh, to, but, but your yen is so strong right now John. <laughs> but this to, is true to, to come at it from another way sure. if you buy a 60 dollar game and you get a good 10 hours out of it you don't feel gypped off at all um, but I expect much higher production values. I expect much more, you know, deep level of gameplay. I mean, Costume Quest is not deep by any means. In fact, that's the game's biggest shortcoming, I think, is that it never really... It, it starts off really good, and you're like, this is a cool battle system. This is cool game concepts. You know, your different costumes have, like, different gameplay abilities. So, like, mm-hmm. one guy... You know, one costume gives you, like, roller, roller skates so you can, you know, go fast. Another one, um, you know, um, lights up your saber so you can crawl into dark places. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Really cool ideas. But they never get beyond like the first level of execution. It's always like kind of they introduce it and then that's sort of it. And the battle system's the same way. By the end of the game, I like pretty much knew how my battle was going to go. As long as I didn't miss a hit, right. I knew exactly how it was going to end up. But you had fun the five hours that it I did. I had a good time. So yeah. I mean, I think to a lot of people, I think it's just a matter of, to a lot of people, a five hour game where you're having fun the whole time is definitely worth fifteen dollars. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think about. I know that games are not DVDs, but I mean, if I watch a TV show DVD compilation for five hours for fifteen bucks, that, that seems like a good deal. To me. Yeah, and I'm not, you know what, like, this is kind of a personal thing. Like, I'd never come out and said, like, it's totally wrong. I'm not here to, like, make some big argument, but I do right. kind of feel like there is, it's right around the, it, it, maybe it's okay, but it's, right. you know, I would have felt better if it was $10. Well, and this actually segues into, because we'd had this uh, argument before about, about Limbo. We were talking about right. Limbo, whether or not uh, Limbo was worth it or something. And uh, I have to say, I played through Limbo last weekend, and I was like, absolutely, I think that game is worth it. Um, right, and that, that was the first game that brought up this argument, right? Because right. it's fairly short. Yeah, it's, well, you, you can I say mean, the same thing about Braid too. Back yeah, in the day, yeah, yeah, you could, you could, yeah. A lot of people talked about it with Braid as well. Um, mm-hmm. Limbo, I just thought that the, um, I really, really liked the uh, storytelling. A lot of people are talking about that it kind of doesn't um, have a story or follow through on its story. It's kind of true, but it does get get you invested in the game. So I would right. call that a story. I'm trying to talk really vague and general, sure, so I don't ruin sure. anything. But I, I think the elements of the game that keep reoccurring and some of the little things that it does uh, to to hint at kind of a narrative are really, really excellent. Well done. It reminds me of kind of like a, of Out of This World and Flashback. Flashback yeah, um, yeah. It's that kind of gameplay where you're dying a lot over and over or you're just sitting there trying to figure out a puzzle. But I thought it does something that is incredibly hard. It did it incredibly well throughout the entire uh, I guess it probably took me about four or five hours to play through, and that is that it had it's a, a lot of puzzles for any people who don't know. I guess I call it a puzzle platformer mm, that has right. this very noir, very um, it's a black and white basically uh, looking game. Um, you see your silhouette of your character the whole time. Yeah. But what what it does um, is that it has its puzzles are hard enough that you have to actually think about it. In general, its puzzles are hard enough that you actually think about it, but not so hard. 
that I ever was like, okay, this is impossible. I'm going to the internet. Right, right. Which you no, mentioned totally. Braid. I actually I felt that way about some of the puzzles sure, in that sure. game. Oh, yeah? I was the 61st person to beat Braid. Whoa! <laughs> congratulations. So I didn't have any facts to look at Master. Oh, look at you, Mr. Yes. Big Man. How do you know that? Because you got on a leaderboard? Yeah, because uh, they had a leaderboard for people who completed it. What else. about all the people who didn't uh, weren't hooked up online? Downloaded yeah, it yeah, and what about them? on it. How did they get it? Yeah, I do that. I do that right now. I have to share Wi-Fi, so I, I download the game and then unhook, unhook well, it. Yeah, when you Screw say, those guys. When you say completed, did you complete all the, uh, what you call it? Did you complete all the pictures? I or? didn't get all the stars or whatever. I, oh. I, I made it to the very end of the game and I beat it. Anyways, back all right. to... Back have you to, published yeah. your... We're fan, talking a lot about old games your here. Your fan so. fiction continuing the Sorry. story of uh, his girlfriend and, and what happened between the two of them? <laughs> is that out yet? Well, has that been actually, published or is I'm that on, still I'm in your on private... My, my second draft. Okay. Nice. That's still in your private archives. We'll look forward to a public reading here at A4 Play. Yes. Anyway, Limbo, let me say absolutely, I think 100% totally worth it, especially if you know the games that I'm talking about, which are kind of old games, but relatively old games right. out of this world flashback. I don't know why more people aren't making those games. Uh, Abe's Odyssey, I think, or uh, Abe's Exodus, those right, games right. were probably the last example of this type of game, and those actually did well. But anyway, the, the puzzles, I think, are really, they, they walk that line. And it's probably something different for every person. Somebody else probably thinks they're too easy. Somebody else probably thinks they're too hard. But for me, it really walked that line. I did think the ending kind of jumped out of nowhere. I don't know that it built to that Right. And I think that that was kind of why I kind of felt like the price was a little too high. It's just because it it kind of left me like wanting more and like kind of ah that's where it ended feeling incomplete yeah a little it felt a little incomplete it didn't well, i won't it didn't build to a point where when it ended i was uh, without spoiling again i'll just say i was surprised oh right. that was the last thing and it was a cool thing but it wasn't like oh it's building this is probably like i'm getting near the end right, right. anyway well, yeah. getting getting back to the the current new game um costume quest i would say you know I, it's timing is perfect right it's a halloween themed game i think now is a really nice time this was a game it's interesting not to get too into localization thing but that is our job right this is a game that i think could never come out in japan because this game was designed basically to appeal to people like us who basically Mm -hmm. grew up you know trick-or-treating in like Uh, suburban u.s mm -hmm. you know all the jokes all the kind of i mean even your health bar is like basically a smarties wrapper i mean it's awesome (laughs) lots of little touches like that are very very cool but they were absolutely aimed at you know us a very specific audience that doesn't exist elsewhere so like do enemies throw those little orange and black like those Mr. orange, like, your sister's costume is basically that that outfit. Yeah, I mean, oh, like wow. there's there's cool, there's a lot of that stuff. And, uh, people uh, gave those things. Do circus penis cause damage to you? <laughs> I do not know what you're talking you about. You don't? No, you, you never got circus penis when you were trick or treating. I don't. Well, what are circus penis? The yeah. worst candy ever. Yeah, they're those really bad kind of foam looking little things. <laughs> oh yeah, about? yeah, yeah. Or okay, apples. Yes. If somebody gives you apples, right? There's be there's bobbing for apples mini games. And okay. This. Actually, you know, in general, I think it's a cool game that's worth checking out. But don't set your expectations too high i really want to see a sequel because these guys obviously people are already talking christmas quests <laughs> oh well, it's pretty soon but. you got three weeks double fine Go. <laughs> i see the core you know the core elements are actually very interesting and if they expand upon those i think they can make a really cool game so i would mm. like to see a sequel okay well uh another uh sequel that we've actually just got jj hi a lot of chatter about you epic failing oh. on any kind of uh coherent argument for or against kirby's <laughs> epic yarn i still don't get it yeah okay. i still don't no, i feel no. dumber i feel like i less ne- i know less about kirby than I did before I listened to our last podcast. Well, I, to, to be fair to myself, I had only played the game for like two or three hours. Uh, I actually finished it last week with uh, my wife. We played the whole oh, thing co-op. 
Okay. Talk uh, about how the co-op works in that game, because I didn't even, uh, ignorant me, didn't even realize that it was co-op or had forgotten since E3. I, uh, I mean, it's like if I, if you've played uh, New Super Mario Brothers for the Wii, it's basically the same thing. You know, you've got two people on, you're Mr. Fluff, or uh, I'm sorry, Prince Fluff or whatever, and Kirby, and then you just go around completing the level together. New Super Mario Brothers for the Wii? Oh, right, okay. For so you're basically, you're equal. Mm-hmm. It's not like a Mario Galaxy situation where one of you is just... Shooting stars. No, no, no. It is secrets. You, you are playing like a real co-op two-player game. Okay. Prince Fluff is like was originally going to be the main character of this game. I don't know right. if there's any Wada asks out right now on Nintendo, which is kind of interesting about this game. And like reading it through, like I kind of felt bad for the developer. Like half of this he wanted to ask the developers, like we were so scared they were going to cancel the game and we didn't know what they were going to do and it wasn't fun until they stepped in and then like but oh. you know somehow Iwata spun it that it you know turned out to be a good thing in the end but it was kind of weird. So last week I I started my. Uh, Whatever that was about the game, calling it a baby game. Two weeks ago, yeah. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't throw that around lightly. I, I like games that are you know kind of lighter, or easier, whatever. I'm not a hardcore gamer. Well, I am a hardcore gamer, but I'm not like this macho like I need to play everything on the hardest difficulty sort of thing. But I say this is a baby game. Mm-hmm. I, I'll let you take me in a second, Kevin. I say it's right. a baby game because for like at least the first three levels or so, the enemies don't actually hurt you. You can you can <laughs> right. you can walk into enemies and they will just bounce off of you and then like they'll fall over and they'll do cute things and stuff like that. It's you know. And I, I made a comment last week saying, like, I would love to play this with my uh, kid, who two I found ago. out, uh, yeah, two weeks ago. I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to keep doing that. <laughs> yeah. That I found out, you know, last week that I'm going to have a son, which is great. Congratulations. All right. Congratulations. Uh, so when you my name Kirby? Well, no. Uh, but when my son is, Fluff? you know, old enough to play games, <laughs> this is, this like is the perfect intro game for those kids because, you know, you just... You go in there. There's no, there's no threat of death or anything like that. You can right. go in and you can get a feel for what a platformer is like. What? And so and that's you, why I, who is not zero years old, right? Uh, how much do you actually enjoy it? Because to me, like that sounds really boring, boring right? Yeah. Well, so for the first few levels, it is boring. It, okay. Like to be straight, like it's, you know, it's very imaginative. It's cute. It's adorable. Like you right. know, it's a lot of really creative visual things going on. And until maybe, like, uh, over the halfway point of the game, it's, like, pretty effortless to get every item and get the ultimate, like, gold coin or whatever. Right. But and it is the, a Kirby game. I mean, let's... Right, uh, right. They've never sure. been too hard. I mean, they're not Starfy easy, but they're not that hard. Okay. <laughs> well, the I, reason why I think this is a bit odd, because I'm sure y'all have seen the commercials for Kirby's Epic Yarn, which are being played in Japan right now, and they, I'll be darned if they're not, predict- they're not showing two adults playing Kirby with each other. Yeah, yeah. there's this uh, a comedy duo, Hanya. They're, like, yeah. They dress up as different people at different stages of their lives. They're like businessmen, they're high school kids, so on and so forth, and they play the game. It's, you know, it's their, whatever, their advertising strategy, but oh. the game itself isn't really for adults. Well, I do, let's, I, let's to, to be fair, like, what we call baby games, like, most probably, quote-unquote, normal adults probably call, like, just games, right? Like, right. a lot of the Wii games and right, stuff like right. that that we might say, this is casual, you can't die, it's boring. A lot of people might just be in a mass-market audience, which is probably what they're sure. doing here in Japan. It's like, hey, right. this actually is and, fun. And, it's, you know, even if you have no experience with games, I think this is kind of like a very light if it means anything i want to say i really want to play it because i think one thing you failed to convey to me and i guess to all of our audience as well (laughs) my bosses uh, are telling me how terrible i am at my job thank you it's basically it's 
freaking beautiful. Like I don't. I went right. back and watched some yeah. movies of it, and it is gorgeous. It like is. the level design, the art direction, everything about it makes me want to basically sit there and play it. Like, am I gonna enjoy the gameplay? Is it a quote unquote baby game? I don't know. Whatever. But I definitely felt like this game is pretty enough and unique looking enough. That well, I have well, to hell, try I, it. I tell you what, I enjoyed Kirby's Air Ride despite everything. I, I reckon Whoa. I probably did that ever come out. That was actually not a bad sure game. Did. Really? Yes. I remember that being in development for like four years. You did not. You did not need sixty hours okay. to okay. enjoy that game. So uh, yeah, and, and like very clever, right? Like the the theme being carried through at least absolutely, just, yeah, yeah. From the E mm, three right. trailer, it looked just like oh, this is like right, clever right. and cute. So, but you seem like you were setting up before before uh, we started going into the other stuff. You were setting up the first couple levels were like this. So how was the so, rest? In the late game, it, it gets pretty difficult. Like, there are stages where I got, like, one little... You know, you collect three items, and then you uh, collect enough beads to get a gold uh, medal to, you know, like, to completely complete the stage. Or uh-huh. Right. And there were stages where I didn't get... I got, like, a bronze medal with one... Maybe maybe one uh, item, you know. It was just... It's really difficult stuff. It's... You can't die, but, you know... It's it ramps up. Yeah. Right. It's hard to, you know, com- quote-unquote, complete the level. And... There's like you know a lot of really really creative level design going on towards the end, and the last stage is like a total love letter to Kirby fans. Cool. Okay. So you end up really liking it. Yeah, I liked it a lot, and and I have to say the music is one of the best soundtracks of the year. So I was in the Iwata, the Iwata asks talks about that a little bit, but the music I believe was handled by the original Kirby guys at HAL. Really, the music. So yeah, oh, it's I, like this I jazzy. Always, I always love Kirby music. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me of uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. Soundtrack, nice. nice. And, All right, uh, I love it. Yeah, it's cool. Um, so another game. Um, some of us have played. Maybe a few of us have played. Actually, here Vanquish. A lot of people talking about that. Oh Vanquish. man, the Vanquish. other end of the spectrum <laughs> from Kirby's I'll Epic say. Yarn. Super hardcore. Vanquish. Um, yeah, man. I read basically um, Mike McWhorter's review on Kotaku, which I thought was really excellent, yes. and basically convinced me to okay, yeah, I really want to. Uh, give this a shot i only played the demo you got the actual game i did get the actual game but i didn't get further than the part in the demo because i basically uh i, I lost like i did the boss in the demo is kevin's celebrating right now what's going on uh well i was getting a bit very off topic you want me to save this for later well yeah actually <laughs> we do yes. yeah maybe just stop jumping up vanquish. and down a little bit yeah, it's yeah. distracting during this. um yeah so uh basically vanquish um I, uh, I i bought the finished game and um i just don't get it yet but i understand enough about it i've read enough about it to understand that there is it's one of those games where you sort of have to understand the play mechanic really well and then everything clicks so people are calling it um god hand meets gears of war yeah yeah which god hand is very much kind of like that for, for, for people who haven't really played that right. i really got god right. hand though i i do not oh, get Vanquish. Yeah. Yeah, I I basically I haven't played God Hand, but I mean I've read all about it and everything. See, I, know, I feel but... like even though I played the demo, I feel like I already get it. I think the controls are very much mm. like a like super deep controls. But you fought you that slide. boss. The boss in that demo is the boss that stopped me. And my I, I don't I mean I understand what I have to do to beat this boss, but it is not right. easy and it is time consuming. And so I went back afterwards and I actually talked to a couple of guys who work at Platinum and I was like, what's the deal? And they were like, well, watch some hardcore play videos on the web. You'll get it. You'll, you know, you want to use the turrets to take out the core and all this. Right, and it's like, right. okay, that's cool. But really, I got to watch videos before I get it? See, I almost I got him within literally like a pixel of killing him my first time going. Ooh, so, okay. Um, yeah, well, I'm, you're I'm, probably better at this sort of game I'm, than I am. I'm so. not good at shooters. <laughs> this, is, this is kind of reminding me of Ninja Gaiden for the Xbox back when it first came out. I, you know, I don't know if I would say that, that game was ridiculously hard off that the charts. Dude, that dude in the horse. 
I don't even I know what. That's, yeah. He, there was a guy, one of the first bosses, I think maybe even the first one, you were like in this village, right? And everything mm. was burning down. And there was a horse boss, mm-hmm. a, a guy riding on a horse. Cannot beat him. It was pretty difficult. <laughs> but I, but well, okay. So I, I will say like very fast moving, very arcadey. It kind of reminds me, did anybody play Omega Boost? Oh, mm-hmm. Of course. PlayStation? Polyphony oh, yeah. Digital, right? Yeah, it yeah, kind of yeah. reminds me of that actually, which is to me, I think mm. the design and everything looks right. really beautiful. I kind of wish, I actually I forgot to do this, but I was going to intro the podcast with like trying to imitate the guy's <laughs> voice Solid from it. Snake. It's, yeah. it's pretty bad. Like I wish they wouldn't. It sounds like a guy trying to do a video game voice. Guy, yeah, right. but Actually, a, num- a number of reviews, sorry to cut yeah. you off, a number of reviews basically pointed out like that they couldn't tell if they were trying to be like kind of ham-fisted or if it actually was just bad acting. Right. They couldn't tell if it was intentional. I don't yeah, know if that's yeah. good or not. You want to either kind of be obvious one way or the other. But, but I, I'm just, I mean, I, to me, I can like take it or leave it. I, I just leave that. And to me, it's like a right. super arcadey, fast action, run around, dodging bullet swarms, like that first boss, the boss in the demo, fucking crazy missile swarms, total Robotech kind of mm-hmm. uh, fan service. Yeah, really, really cool design. I mean, yeah, I kind of wish your guy was a robot just so he didn't, you know, talk like because he, <laughs> he looks fucking badass and yeah, all the weapons yeah. are cool. Some of the weapons feel good, like this right. is, like kind of pulse rifle thing where you can you can just tell the shots are like yes. super powerful. It's it, really cool design. So I, I feel bad since I've only played the demo and the game is out, sure. but I'm definitely enough to want to play more. No, I, re- I really want to like I really want to like the game and I really want to know how to play it because like I, I love Mikami. And well, God it does it does have an actual baby mode for people like you, so you might you know for, well, right. you like I'm, baby I'm, games. I'm not good at first person shooting. <laughs> I'm just but actually, no, I think it's that's something that's person, really interesting. It's not a third person, well, but that's one of the things about something about platinum games is they have that super easy mode, like casual. I think they call it. I forget what they call it in English, but casual mode or something where. You basically hardly have to do anything to succeed. So if you do have a trouble with it, you can do that at least. Right. Well, I just kind of the game to me felt like it was sending me- uh, mixed messages. Like they were at one hand, you're like you know you're sliding through the stage like super high uh, speed, doing right. all this crazy shit. But then at the same time, you're like, okay, stand behind this this uh, bunker or whatever. And then see, I don't get know, the, I don't see the, uh, like, I don't know which one they want me to do. Like, why well, can't you me can to go do crazy both or, or you can do either. Like if you're one type, if you're a, a type of gamer, there's like a bunch of different ways to, to take on things. I think mm. if you're like X type of gamer and you want to never slide right. or whatever. Right. I think, um, you know, something of vanquish that was interesting to me too, is that, uh, and I felt this when I saw the very first trailer. You remember that first trailer they showed with the president talking about, you know, like trying to pump up the yeah. American people? Joan Allen, by the way, the right. president I know. looks just like Joan Allen. <laughs> so the actual game, uh, you don't get to the demo portion for a short bit, but it's in part of the first stage. But the game starts off with basically San Francisco getting destroyed by right. the Russians who launches like satellite laser yeah, attack. Yeah, that was God, and damn the Russians. Like of all, damn the place, all the places. But I got to tell you, like a little bit about that was like, I, I was falling asleep Wait. when I started. I, it was like, one, it was like, <laughs> <laughs> it was like one o'clock when I sat down to play the game, and I was like, "I'm kind of tired. Maybe I'll wait." But then that came on, and I realized like my adrenaline's getting kind of pumped. I want to go out and fight the Russians. So it was just kind of interesting. Russians so, are underused enemies anymore. Absolutely, right? man. Tap the 80s, that it was 80s. all about that, right? Ivan the Cold Drago. War. Yeah. Totally. As totally. a southerner, though, I like San Francisco blows up. I don't really care. <laughs> oh, where? where are you oh, come from? on. We love where San Francisco. Where are you from? Francisco? Francisco. Uh, South. Tennessee, Memphis, See, the Tennessee. thing is, if they made them blow up Tennessee, oh. nobody would be like, yeah, whatever, we don't care. I, w- I would <laughs> so. actually be happy. I'd be like, where do I sign up? For hey, uh, uh, we have a big fan uh, uh, base in Tennessee. Actually. Sorry, Tennessee. <laughs> Wish that I was on a rocky top down on the Tennessee. Hey, all right, Tennessee, so. uh, Tennessee Vols fight song. <laughs> and we're going to be cutting Kevin off Kevin. Kevin. The song again. Yeah, Kevin Gifford, your tab is pulled. Hand the strong zero to John. <laughs> if you want. <laughs> yeah, no more songs for you. 
Um, and and, and to, in order to enforce that, to keep you from drinking, we're going to make you talk. So you were playing an interesting game this week that I want to hear more about. Most certainly. La Mulana. Actually, not this week, but before you came out here, you were playing La Mulana. So, yeah, tell everybody what La Mulana is. Well, La Mulana was a game uh, that was originally basically a dojing game. In other words, it was an mm. amateur game produced by some Japanese folks in an outfit called Nigolo, mm-hmm. which in Japanese uh, means 256. It's a reference to basically 8-bit gaming culture. Right. And Oh, really? Yeah. I never knew that. That's interesting. Indeed. Um, well, thank you very much, Sean. <laughs> I, I, I try my best to be interesting, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but La Milana was a game they originally released it on the PC back way back in 2005 and got a fan translation into English maybe a couple of years afterwards and it gained a great deal of popularity after that. So uh, similar, I mean, in some ways, similar to Cave Story, um, which is yeah, it, it the really, other game from uh, from Tyrone's from Nicholas, which just recently got an update. By the way, for, a lot of people don't know this actually, but the game was updated uh, maybe two weeks ago. They fixed a lot of music and yeah. did a bunch of stuff to yeah, the original really? get rid of that one sound effect. They did actually. They oh. I was one of the things. Well, they, I don't think they got rid of it, but I just read that they did something to alleviate that. Basically, it was whenever you, what was it every. Gold piece you, or every time you kill an enemy, they yes. drop that stuff that you pick up the bells, and it made like that really annoying oh. sound effect. They did do something um, to fix that. So, okay, yeah, sorry, uh, yeah, digression yes. aside. Uh, much like Cave Story, uh, La Milana was a game that got its start in the Japanese doujin scene. Right. Unlike Cave Story, however, La Milana was a game. It was somewhat of a tribute to video games that came out on the MSX. The MSX being a eight bit computer system, mm-hmm. which was. Probably the mainstream computer system in Japan from uh, all throughout the 80s, from about 1983 until about the early 1990s. Would you say the MSX was sort of like Japan's, I don't know, Commodore, more or less? It would be precisely like okay. Japan's Commodore 64. Okay. And people might know yeah, the MSX or MSX2, right, from such games as Solid Kana- Snake. Konami was one of the biggest supporters of MSX. Right. Uh, Metal Gear was originally an MSX game. Right. Uh, Metal Gear 2, not Snake's Revenge. Snake's Revenge, Coach Mode was not involved with Snake's Revenge. The real Metal Gear 2. Solid right. Snake. Solid Snake. Was Solid Snake, and that came out of the MSX 2 in 1990. And only. Only. And you could play the MSX too. versions of those games on, I think, Metal Gear Solid 3. Something whatever it was. Are they yeah. on the virtual console? I know that MSX is, but I don't know. Actually. I so, believe it's Japan only. Uh, I see. Yep. Keep sadly. Yep. Let's get back, and back so, on the main track. So you're playing it now. On- and so and so, you know, La Mulana is a game which is released on the PC, but it was basically you know it's a tribute to the MSX. The graphics are very MSX like in that it's very eight bit. It's very similar to a game that Konami put out for the MSS called Maze of Gallius. It's very much a side-scrolling, vertical scrolling. It's a flick-screen scrolling uh, action-slash-adventure-slash-RPG game. Mm-hmm. You're exploring these vast ruins, uh, searching for items that get you from here to there. You're kind of an Indiana Jones type. Very much like an Indiana Jones type of guy. And you're playing this on the... Well, I was playing it on the PC. Oh, really? Well, the Wii version hasn't, hasn't come, come out, out yet. It's not out yet. Well, right. we don't, we, that's the one that we want to pimp for our good friend. That's uh, right, Tyrone Rodriguez, friend right. of the show. And his uh, company. That's been in the works now for uh, for a while. A good mm-hmm. while. Well, of course, that's the big news is that it was originally, you know, in the PC version that came out, it was 8-bit MSS graphics. Yeah. Uh, they're porting it to, to WiiWare as we speak. Mm-hmm. And... 
For this, they've done a big upgrade to the graphics. And by upgrade, I don't mean that they did it in 3D or anything like that. I mean they upgraded it to about maybe Sega Genesis visuals. Doesn't look like Donkey Kong Country? They're not, was not wearing a tie now? And, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. No rap? No Cranky Kong? <laughs> Sadly, no rap. Although, maybe for the U.S. version, they'll put a rap in. Oh, I can only hope. We can rap, only rap hope. In. So kind of puzzly or more action-y or both? Or what, what would you compare it to? Extremely puzzly. <laughs> I can only compare it. Well, heck, mostly puzzly, occasionally action as well. Mm-hmm. I would compare it to, well, if you think about all the 8 bit adventure games, you think of like The Goonies 2. Okay. Yes. Yeah, you know that game? Oh, yeah. Mike, yes. you know, Mikey having this crazy adventure with Konami Man and all that nonsense. <laughs> um, <laughs> What about Goonies one? Oh, we're getting into the. Yeah, well, let's I'm hold on. Make a you note here. Goonies <laughs> one versus Goonies two. Like four Kevin's hours going long. to tell us a story on um, them. But uh, sorry, continue. Yes, like Goonies two for the NES. Yes, like those sorts of like those sorts of adventure games where you're mainly searching for items and those items will allow you to unlock it. Lombardi is. To some extent, kind of a Metroidvania type of game when you get right down to it. Well, that makes me really want to play it. Yeah. Oh, indeed, it's a very tough Metroidvania. Yeah. I should give you. I should, I should keep that in mind. So, clarify one quick thing for me. I'm sorry. I, uh, is Cave Story and La Mulana related at all in Japan, no. or are they only related because the same publisher in America decided to bring them out? That's correct. Okay. The only way that they're related is that they're both games that got their start in the Japan doji okay. scene. Okay, right. The Japan gotcha. am- amateur video game gotcha. scene. Because I really enjoyed Cave Story, so I'm looking forward to this game as a result. And to some extent, they're somewhat similar in style in that they're both kind of basically, you know, side, you know um, 2D side-scrolling, side-scrolling adventure games. Adventure games. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, and so did you finish it? Did you had you played it before? Well, the funny thing is, I originally was made aware of La Milana, I think, in two thousand seven when the English uh, version of it fan came patch, out. Fan translation, yes. right? And that was the first time I was aware of it. And so I, you know, because I know Japanese, I figured I might as well play the original Japanese version. Oh, and so I began playing you it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I, I usually end that way when it comes to Japanese games. I'm Are not. you going to post angry screeds on the message boards when they change <laughs> the names of the uh, small bunny characters? Um, <laughs> That you yeah that don't factor into the story at all. Uh, if this were still two thousand and three, maybe I would have. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But um, I think I've graduated by that point by now, definitely. So, okay. La Milana, should people be excited about the WiiWare uh, game? Well, I must admit, I have not. You know, I've, of course, I've seen the um, preview material which they've released at La Milana. Um, I really enjoy the original one, and it's the same dudes basically who are making the new one right and they're made you know they're, as i say they're improving the graphics somewhat right if, so in if, general though you like the game i mean oh it is a tremendous game oh there cool. you go yeah, that's what we're looking tremendous for tremendous game tremendous okay oh, here yes. first tremendous tra la milana something to look forward to on we does anybody know what's you know one thing i mean there are those guys are a small outfit so it does take them a while to get games out but do they have a release date for this game yet or for the WiiWare version i'm not sure WiiWare games really get release dates beyond like a month like certain ones yeah. get well not like s- s- specific but we right. never release I, I, a window yeah. yeah i don't even okay well hopefully uh those guys will get that game out soon because it does look really cool it is nearing the end of development i remember that because they were showing it off to i believe limited audiences at the tokyo game show okay in okay. nearly complete state so good i i don't know i don't know all the vagaries of how nintendo does it like does nintendo Dictate the release date to some extent just to have a regular amount of stuff going on over. Potentially. Yeah, yeah I, we don't know either. All I know is I want to get my hands on the game soon. Right. So hopefully they, uh, soon. they claim they'll be out before the end of the year. 
but oh. we'll see. Okay. All right. Yeah, I've been putting off playing that game because of the Wii version. I want to play it on of the Wii. Of course, buy it, support it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, also a game to apparently buy and support the game that everyone is buying and supporting uh game dev story oh yeah which i think i'm the only person that i know that is not i played like two minutes of it i'm the only person now i want to not play it so i can be the guy (laughs) not playing it no you need to play it man it's great everybody's playing i was a big evangelist for this game i pimped it on facebook um and gaff somebody on gaff turned me on to it and uh important moment this is the first iphone game that's ever being discussed on yeah that's true a sad sad day (laughs) in the eyes of many although it is i was having a good it was developed. It was developed in yeah, Japan. To be fair, it was developed in Japan by a company called Kairosoft that I know nothing about, other than that these guys made a pretty cool game, and I want to see what else they can do. But so basically, yeah. What? What? Is, I'm just joking about the, sure. the iPhone part mostly. But um, no, but I I get it for t- sure. Tell people, yeah. L- l- so what is it about? It does sound really cool. Game Dev say. Story is a simulation game in the purest you know sense of the word. Basically, you are running a game company. You start out in like the 80s, basically, or a fictional version of the 80s, uh, making. PC games with a tiny little development company. Uh, you know, you have a couple of people on your staff, a, you know, coder, artist, whatever, and you basically are making games and publishing games. And the graphics are like three quarter overhead. Three quarter kinda. overhead. It never leaves the view. All you ever ever see in this game is a view of your office. Your office upgrades <laughs> right. as you get bigger, but well, it never you, changes from watching. The, oh well, you go to the game awards once a year. You go to the year. game awards, and <laughs> then you fun. go to the game decks, the uh, TGS, right? You go to the TGS uh, style game conference. But in general, it's basically a, a simulation of what it probably would have been like to be a game developer. You know, kind of growing up with the industry. Mm-hmm. It, it's based on Japan, but it's more or less you know parallel to the U.S. Right? You start off back making PC games. You want to make a game, and you, you know your first review scores. You get reviewed like uh, Famitsu style, like four numbers, and usually like fours and fives. You know, you get shitty reviews, and then it's like, yeah, uh, you sell twenty, thirty thousand copies of your first couple of games. You make just enough money to, you know, put some money into your next game, and you start, you know, you start basically building up to have enough money to buy a license to program for the MSX, mm-hmm. well, whatever they call it in the game, <laughs> uh, which is like your first kind of like step up, and then eventually the Game Boy, the NES, the Super NES, and you've got different. You're hiring on guys that have different stats like what scenario graphics scenario graphics uh director sound hackers yeah well there's different job classes essentially right. there's there's there is it still a mystery what exactly the hacker does for you the hacker is basically oh. can do the, the hacker is kind of like the ultimate class like once you you know you have to pay a lot of money to, to a hollywood agent to go out and scout for people and they will oh. bring back potentially hackers and you want to hire Blackley, these guys basically you uh, <laughs> hire a shameless blackley like a level 20 is he like the highest uh, basically his stats yeah. are like way higher than everyone there's some mysteries to how the stats work in that game but but anyway the basic core of this is your the really fun part about this game is you make a game it starts off actually challenging to be fair when you get 10 years in it's a 20 year cycle basically it starts to get if you're good it starts to get too easy that's one thing i think they didn't really work on too much on balancing it out and making it continue to be challenging as you get older right but when you start off it's really challenging i was close to bankrupt a couple times like i had to basically <laughs> take on consulting jobs to just like do like art for like a comic book or something basically to get money <laughs> to fund my next game right and the way personally the way my my thing is uh, the super nintendo or the actually the nintendo was coming out and i wanted to buy a license and i couldn't afford it so i shit out three um baseball games in a row on the baseball <laughs> simulations on the game boy one after the other like i 
I knew I, this is bad, but I have to do this to make money. You're basically Namco. I was ah, for more a, couple, a, a year or two, that right? RBI baseball, or, or exactly, right, basically. Right. And then Power I made Pro. enough money to buy a license, and then bought, made a Nintendo game. I made a shooting game, S Type, you know, right. based on our favorite R Type, and basically gradually grew up. And it's super fun. You name your games. So you just mentioned an aside, which I was gonna say is I think the part that's actually really catching on with people. You get to name your company, but then you get to name each of your games. You name right. each of your games. Everybody's tweeting like I named my game this. Brian Payton had a really good game name. I wish I could remember it. We'll look it up during the break. But yeah, yeah it's like some funny people are tweeting their game names about right. shooters and stuff right. like I that. I actually posted my entire 68 game history on Gap just when I was done with the game. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, because now it's fun. It's super like because it's actually I think it's really fascinating to see. It mirrors real life in a lot of ways. And like you can basically go, you make a lot of sequels and kind of make a lot of money. But if you make the same game too many times, the fans get pissed. You're managing your fan nice. base as well, so you advertise yeah. to bring in new fans. And if you don't do a good job of, you know, you make the same genres over and over, then the fans get upset. You lose fans. Uh, on the other hand, you can advertise in different ways. So you can all the way up to like the best way, which is like advertising on the moon, lunar writing, <laughs> and then you get like you add lots of fans to your fan base. And um, the thing is. Uh, I, I first played this game on a Sunday afternoon. It was like noon, and I was about to get lunch. And I was like, I'm going to make a game. And I did it, and it was really cool. As soon as the game goes on sale, you see your little dollars up in the corner going up. And you're like, my company's making money. Right. i got to get the next game out ASAP. You go right back and start making your next game. Yeah. And then it gets to a point where you're like, just one more game. Just one more game. And bef- I swear to God, six hours later, <laughs> I did not eat lunch yet. I was still playing this game. It sounds very basically like this is an old, old school reference, but like like Lemonade Stand or like oh, Taipan or something. Like very much numbers and stat based, but yes. it gets addictive, right? And they have a lot of little things going on the screen, sorry, Kevin, where that, that make you kind of feel like stuff is always happening. Like you're like you're you have you start off with like I think four people, but you gradually expand. Right. Mm-hmm. But like you know, and they're as they're working, you see the little like this, the music symbol pop up or whatever. Like they're adding to these different elements of your game to make the game better. Mm. And then like you know, every now and then a guy will go on fire, which means like they're like on a roll right now. Oh, and it they're, could like, be a jam. Yeah, or but it could be a bad <laughs> fire. They could be actually making a lot of bugs. Yeah. But usually it's because you have to at the end you debug the game and then you have to get rid of oh, all the bugs. Wow. But I mean, it's just it's just always something going on. There's always a reason to keep playing. Super well designed game. Okay. And I don't know anybody who's not like gotten super into it after giving it a try. Yeah, I Mark, think. me. No, but, well, you have, you will. I think once yeah. you give it a try, I totally think you'll get into it. It's really, really fun. Kevin, you've been itching to say something. Yeah, well, sorry, the funny Kevin. thing is, is that um, this is not a completely original game concept. Mm-hmm. Back in 1998 on the PlayStation in Japan, oh, wow. there was actually a game I have up on my magic screen here. It's called yeah. The Game Maker. It was produced by a publisher called Exiting Entertainment, which never existed outside of Japan and doesn't mm-hmm. exist now for that matter. But it it was basically the same kind of game. Game you, creating you, simulation. Yes, yes. You had a you had a developer, you start with a very small amount of people. In the very beginning you could only you the only thing you could produce was basically a Tetris clone or some other kind of puzzle clone. What's this say? The description on the side is uh, a Ningen drama well, I can't see the kanji from here it simulation. Is, well, you could say simulation. Well, basically, it's you know, it, it's like a simulation along the same lines of like you know, Monster Ranger that sort of thing. It's said to say, you know, human right drama raising <laughs> simulation. Well, there was also wasn't the art there? Looks uh, crazy there. It is. It is. And um, the funny thing is, is that it was not a very popular game at its time, of course. But now the game Dev story is out. It has. It's on the iPhone. It has a bit of a social aspect to it. Am I right? Game Dev story. Yeah. 
In what way? Well, I mean, you know, you can, oh, you mean like people are talking to each other about it, or well, I mean, you can you can tell people, you know, you can tell people the names that. Oh you yeah, absolutely, sort of yeah, totally, yeah. It's it's a lot more casual. You can have it with you at all times, right? Right. All that sort of thing is just having. It just goes to show a difference in interfaces can really make or a break difference a in game. interface and a difference in era. Let's remember too yeah. that you know Japan, it has never been really taboo to play games, but in America, it mm-hmm. kind of was for a while. But it's games have become mainstream enough now that a game like this can actually succeed to a casual audience whereas well and, and yeah i before. mean also a, yeah a difference yeah. in publicity i've never heard i've never heard of this game right before. right oh, yeah and of course like, you know the playstation late 90s was like you know well the internet and twitter and facebook are certainly helping this game i just one guy tweeted right. me about it and then i made a big thing on facebook next thing i know everybody i know is playing yes. it and they're all tweeting it to their friends you and, spread it to a lot of people and i saw a lot of people get the uh, the information from you um but anyway so yeah so I, by all accounts worth checking out i, I only got to play it for like two minutes mm. jj you you played it you liked uh, it? Quick, yeah, quick actually, it was funny because sentence. I was I was playing it. I found it on my own, and then like I checked to Twitter just to say like this game is awesome. And I saw John talking about it. I was like, <laughs> "That's crazy! This game is." I was at the uh, baby clinic, waiting for our turn, and like I was completely ignoring my wife playing this game. I felt like a really terrible husband. <laughs> Not a back oh, of the box me. quote. Yeah, that's but, the other <laughs> on that exactly. But it was really it was fun. Okay. Yeah, the other cool thing too, just really quick, is that you know once a year you can go to the game awards and you, your game might be nominated to win. And the other thing is you can pay money to go to the game show and advertise a bo- have a booth and like you can hire people in costumes or you can hire booth babes. Like it's oh, very much like a real like very game interesting. Simulator. Yeah, it's really nice. cool. I'm really nice. If you're a game fan, I, I think those kind of touches will just kind of make you like the game even more. Yeah, it's you will like, love it. It's, 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 this is the game for like the sales age crowd. Everybody who like loves reading sales figures and everything because every yeah. one of your games mm-hmm. has like my at the end my games were selling thirty five million copies each. But I mean it doesn't start <laughs> that way, you know. Impossible. Well, twenty years, you know, we had a lot of Super experience. Mario Brothers. You were just my on base percentage hero series of simulation baseball games actually now, hang sold on a very well. It's Super Mario Brothers on the NES, on the Famicom. Sold I know actually six point one million copies, and you're selling twice, uh, hey, four one, times out on a baseball games. One can dream. <laughs> the game actually does expand past the current selection of consoles into like future non-existent consoles like the 512 and the whatever so like towards right. the very end you get to like the future but okay cool. that's enough that's that, enough yeah that's enough on uh, play the, game dev story that's yeah, very cool that's basically the takeaway from it um kevin yes uh what else you have been playing actually you tweeted about a very special special event you got to very. what level was it 59? Oh, right. 59 in the Tower of Draga. Yeah, I always want to call it not all. Duraga, but uh, Druaga. You're a big fan? Like, from way back? You said you had, like, a, a YouTube video of uh, how to play it or something? Well, when I say way back, it would be basically about two years ago I introduced this game. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me introduce the game to you. The Tower of Duraga <laughs> was a game produced in 1985 for arcades by Namco. Yes. It was produced by Masanobu Endo, who is also very famous for being the creator of Zevius, basically the first real shooter game the way that we know it nowadays. Right. And he basically created the genre more or less, right? More or less, yeah. By the way, 3D Zevius Zevius coming back out on uh, is that 3DS eyewear or uh, oh. I don't know much about that, but I think like they take the Famicom game and added 3D elements to it or something. Yes, maybe. Ooh, right. that's freaky. Yeah. Continue. Sorry. So Duraga was a game they produced the Endo produced in 1985 mainly because Nanko had a bunch of excess. Uh, boards for Mappy, if you remember that game. Mm. And they needed to get rid of these boards somehow. They needed to put out a new game, which ran on Mappy hardware. Right. And so Endo produced 
Draga and is a, I guess you would call it to some extent an action RPG meant for arcades. I wouldn't quite call it an action RPG. Well, you could you could call it the kind of precursor to what evolved into the action RPG, though, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean it's it's an arcade, considering game. its time frame. For sure, yeah, it's yeah. You you play Gilgamesh as he tries <laughs> to save the princess Kai from the evil Druaga. Uh, and in order to do that, you have to climb a 60-floor tower full of monsters and traps and tricks and also treasure chests, which you need to pick up the treasure chests at nearly every floor to get the next stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, revealing these treasure chests is the interesting part of the game because... You have to do very certain special things. For example, you need to. Def- for example, you know you may need to defeat certain enemies in order to reveal the treasure chest. You may right. need to input certain button presses in order to open, you know, reveal the treasure chest. You may Jesus. need to. It was a game loaded with secret, like secret, secret. you know, techniques, basically. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, you may, you know, you may need to, for example, you know. Uh, uh, take out your sword, put it back, and then put it right out again in order to reveal the treasure chest. You may need to wait until the time limit has reached uh, 50 seconds in order to reveal the treasure chest. So how chest. did this stuff come... Like, this is all sounds like super hardcore stuff you would have mm. had to do. Is this, like, did they just expect players to kind of figure this out while they were playing the game? How did yeah. the knowledge get out? Was there, like, a guidebook back then or something? Or Were there kids, like, Mortal Kombat selling little photocopied um, <laughs> things at the arcade for 50 cents? <laughs> right. Killer Instinct. God, I hated those kids. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck those kids. To some extent, there was because you had to think. Remember back, this was in uh, the the second half of 1985. There was no internet. There was no, right. you know, TV show devoted to video games. And so instead, what you had were arcades, the network of arcades. And most Japanese arcades, especially back at the time, uh, they had a notebook which was at you know the corner of the arcade. Oh, they yeah. still have those. That's actually. right. They still God. have those at a lot of places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people would leave notes at these at these at in these notebooks, you know, talking about, you know, they played X game and they found this or that or the other thing. If you know That is amazing. That's what that thing is. That's I had no crazy. idea what that was for. That I didn't either. Awesome. I see that all the time. I mean, well, I, I now, saw nowadays it more. they're used for uh, like in you know, card games are really popular in arcades right now. And, right. Yeah. Uh, people who get like cards that they don't need, they'll just dump it in the folder, and you know they're free for anybody to. Take oh, really? Them. Yeah. Wow, yes. that is really fucking I had no, cool. That is awesome. Yeah. yeah. So it's that sort of thing. There were also Dojinchi, of course, at the time. Game Freak, of course, was Game Freak. Of course, is known nowadays as the po- Pokemon. Uh, developers, developers yeah. Pokemon. But Game Freak actually got a start, believe it or not, as a Basically, um, fanzine. Yes, uh, Satoshi Tajiri produced a fanzine in the early '80s devoted to uh, strategy guys for video games. He would distribute these at Comicet and all these sorts of things. And he did one for the Tower of Draga, and other other strategy guys like that got distributed at you know other otaku oriented events like that. And they have those at uh, Mandarake and they uh, had a, they have a shitload of those at Mandarake and Nago now. And I can't afford them; they're all like six thousand yen each. Right. Otherwise, you know, if I were, if I were Bill Gates, I'd buy those in a heartbeat. But you know, <laughs> sure, Bill Gates, Bill Gates you'd too. buy those uh, those seventy dollar uh, game game freaks. No problem. No problem. Not unless you were Bill Gates, though. <laughs> well, okay, maybe you want to aim aim high, right? All right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, Draga is that sort of game. It is extremely tricky. You cannot solve it by yourself. It was a game that really got that really became popular precisely because there was this. 
network of notebooks, people talking to each, to each other, word of mouth, right. all that sort of thing, which, you know, it, it was in a way the cumulative effort of all the gamers in Japan in 1985 right. that found a way to solve this game. Yeah. One of the ways you revealed the treasure, you revealed the treasure in a certain stage, you had to press the one player start button. <laughs> That's <laughs> fucking evil. Are you serious? It is evil. Yes. Has, Which what stage number do you know offhand? Um I can tell you how to get how to reveal the treasures in sequential order, but it's kind of, know it's it kind if of you a bit difficult. It. Okay. Yeah, I'll know if I One saw One of the it. later stages though. I want to say safe 30, to say. I want to say 31, 32, something like that. That's fucking nuts. That's crazy. Well, you know, I, and this actually will lead us into the NES, I think, uh mm-hmm. conversation yeah, yeah. that we'll have in the next segment. But one of the things I really miss about video games with the internet, you get it in a sense with the internet, but with strategy guides and whatever is kind of the recess yes. kind of schoolyard. Oh, Absolutely. well, I heard about the minus world. Uh, this is what you do. You can get to there. Like that whole aspect exactly. of games is gone. Yeah. And I, you know, he, it's it, you saying that, and I was just thinking the exact same thing. And I think Druaga, in a way, I wonder if Druaga in any way influenced Zelda because it sounds quite a bit like how you kind of learned how to play Zelda for Famicom, you know, for the right. NES. Perhaps to some extent, yeah. Right? I mean, it was kind of, I mean, it was a maybe more user friendly, but it was kind of the same thing you had to share information with other people right. walking through mm. walls in the second quest i yeah. remember like telling my friend about that and he's like what are you talking about right. like you didn't do it in the whole yeah. first game and how many like, stories did you hear from people that were total bullshit about yeah. like how to get to the minus world or minus world 2 or whatever right. it's oh, like sure, you know, yeah. walk on the ceiling i remember all that stuff mortal Kombat. there needs to be more more of that but with yeah with with it's strategy kind of guys so no day day and day and anymore. That, that's sort of an era which is gone sadly simply because we have the internet and we have everyone finding everything you know, as, as but isn't that what's good about the internet though that well, we can all talk to each other about this kind of stuff part of it is the internet can just be that virtually but you have to structure your game around the fact that you're not going to tell everybody right, everything right. the day that the game comes mm-hmm. out and that doesn't happen a lot I think there's a way to take advantage of that to actually do that even more so now with Twitter and, and online mm-hmm. you can actually make that happen faster and more effectively but people don't really I don't feel like people are really doing that effectively yeah and yeah. actually you know, I say that but now when I actually think about it, a lot of people are just like, that's spoilers, no spoilers. People don't like spoilers. <laughs> nah, but, but well, this yeah, is yeah, a different thing. Gap, this is, of course, but... No, this is like, this is a different thing than spoilers. Well, I remember, I, mem- I remember specifically Braid. Uh, when Braid was coming out and everybody was trying to solve it together, like, a lot of people were like, no, I don't, don't, just you'll ruin the game. Well, I'm, well yeah, we just, would trade hints, though. I mean, it wasn't always like, this is how you beat, you know, this is how you get past the dude who says grumble, grumble. It was more like, well, try this or try that. Right. You would try to give a hint. And like, if you don't want to know, hints. you don't want to listen to the kids talking about Zelda if you just bought it. If you're just right. going to get it for your birthday, you're not going to go over and, you know... And you would usually say, too, like, give me a hint. Don't flat right. out tell me. Exactly. I don't want to know. So, yeah. so we're, we're leading so, into yeah, So, so I'm, uh, just let me finish this saw about Doraga. So right. I was bumping around Shibuya. Uh, yes. A4's offices are based in Shibuya, of course. And I ran, course. I ran to this arcade. In the basement, they have a bunch of games for 50 yen. Ah, I love that arcade. Oh, you know where it is, yes, eh? You need to show me because I want to go. Yeah. That's yes, awesome. Indeed. So they had they had Duraga, they had Bubble Bobble, they had versus Super Mario Brothers, which I'll talk about later. Um bunch of amazing people playing these games too. They're super game masters, no doubt. And so I started playing Duraga. <laughs> super game masters. Super game masters. No doubt. Let there be no question. Yeah, Adi No would be super jealous. SGMs. And so I started playing Duraga. And, you know, I pretty much memorized how to get treasure in sequential order. You have sort of, you know, you have, uh, what's the word I'm thinking about? Uh, mnemonics. Mm-hmm. Do you remember all that sort of thing? Mnemonics, yeah. You have some mnemonics to remember yes. the tricks. And- defeat two green slimes, defeat one blast slime, defeat one of the um, 
uh, one of the knights, you know, go up to the first wall and press down. That doesn't sound like uh, a mnemonic. <laughs> where, when are we getting to I'm basing it off of that. I mean, when are we getting to the mnemonic here? Where's no, the Luigi sorry. Div? Oh, okay. I'm, I'm all translating them for you. Oh, okay. okay, okay. What well, is it in Japanese? Does it rhyme or something? No, nothing like that. Oh, okay. just, <laughs> Bummer. Some right. just matter. But so anyway, I started playing uh, Draga, and I made it um, about 20, uh, 20 minutes into my first coin. I was at about level, sorry, floor 30-ish, 35-ish. And began, somebody walking around like got, got, got a kill screen coming up here. Got a, <laughs> somebody's been level thirty six. Yeah, Draga. check Walter, it out. Walter Day might as well have been there. I had, I had yeah. an audience of about His two, Footlocker uh, outfit. I have an I had an audience of about two or three people. Yeah, it's a smaller case, so it can't really support much more of an audience than sure. that. Yeah, but they it's were all, probably like, Whitey's got the game exactly. skill. Wow. Precisely, yeah. I was I was a bit of a sideshow act <laughs> at that time, <laughs> and so. Um, to play an entire run of Draga takes approximately eh, about 40 minutes. That's pretty amazing. I thought it would have been much game. longer. Yeah. Really? No, but I mean, it's amazing to me that any game, because those games were designed to be that you can't oh, play right. them for That's more true. than two true, and a half yeah. minutes on one credit. It takes a lot of concentration, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And so I I lost one life at about the 30s. I think I had trouble beating a... Um, Mirror Knight, and so at level fifty nine, level fifty nine is basically it, yeah. the climax of Draga. You had to beat, uh, you had to be a bunch of knights. You had to be real high speed hyper knight. You had to beat all the doppelganger wizards, of which you know there are four Damn wizards. Doppelganger wizards. There, I love the names of these hyper knights. Was one of them too? <laughs> hyper knights was one of them too. Yeah, you had to be. You had to beat the. There are four wizards that show up, and only one of them is a real wizard, and he had. He can only attack maybe at most one or two before they disappear, and so. That takes up a lot of time. There's a timeline every floor too. Right. Yeah. Um, that takes a lot of time. So if you mess up, you know, if you're just unlucky with that, you're screwed. Okay. And then after that, you had to beat a Quox, which is a dragon. And after that, you finally get to beat Draga. And All so right. okay, I I finally in my last life. Okay, it took me bloody two minutes, two minutes <laughs> to beat the friggin' doppelganger wizards. And by the time I for a super game, by, by by time I by time I did it, I had maybe about twenty seconds left on the timer, yep. and so I beat the quacks. You can beat the quacks about one, you know, you yeah. can beat the quacks of a hidden. Of course. And, and by the time I beat the quacks, I made it all the way over the quacks. It was literally about maybe seven seconds left on the time clock. I was like, God damn it, I gotta beat this. I gotta beat fucking Draga <laughs> in seven seconds to make it to the exit somehow. And I'll be damned if Draga did not kill me in one hit. Because oh. the thing, because the thing about Draga is that. Owned. Gilgamesh has HP, but the HP is not displayed anywhere, so you do not know how much <laughs> fucking HP Gilgamesh has. <laughs> wow. And so I lost my last life against Draga himself. I was like, God damn it. Did you get any applause or anything? Or did everyone yeah, just sort of walk like away? Like golf, golf clap, maybe? No, I didn't I didn't get that, per se, uh, because, uh, you know, Japanese people are tend to be reserved when you're in the right. basement of a Shibuya arcade. SGMs are kind of, they're, they're faint with I their was, praise. They're, I was yeah. hold so back. angry. Well, we salute you. You did, it, you did quite I a job there. So angry, though. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to get the ending. Oh, we have no, a bit of a history, no. actually, 8-4, too, because we translated the virtual console manual for the arcade version of Tower of Draga. We did a few Namco games, actually. We basically created the game. Right. In other words. Damn clucks, or whatever you call them. Yeah. We named those guys. Sorry, those Quoks yeah. is the least, uh, the, is the weakest of the dragons that appear in the Tower of Draga. Mm. There's a silver dragon, the black dragon. I think that's it, actually. It was damn and dragons. Really, you have to. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm no super player. You know, we, no, I think you're a super game player. You got the. I'd say 59. you're a super game, super game master. I believe it was. Yeah, you're a super master? game master. 
As I am not a super game master, the thing about Draga is once you learn how to defeat each individual type of enemy, it's really not so terribly difficult. Sure, you just have to concentrate. Right, like right. You said. It's a, it is a matter of concentration. Right. Speaking of concentrating, I think we should move on. You, you got your yes. finger up. So Kevin has one last. You have one more Draga mm, closing no, comments. No, we're good. No, okay. I think yeah. So if you're still with us, I think you'll you'll actually <laughs> oh, really enjoy the oh. next segment because yes. we're going to delve into more super hardcore history. Uh, courtesy of one Mr. Kevin Gifford. Oh, hi there. Uh, among them, I we, we just have like a grab bag of different topics to talk about. But um, yeah, this is going to be a long podcast. Apologies in advance, but hopefully, yeah, it's maybe we should it. break this into two. I started thinking we're at an yeah. hour forty right now, so well, let's see how it goes. Oh, I need a break. Anyway, we're going to talk about um, all kinds of stuff. We're going to talk about the development of the Famicom. We're going to talk about the early games. We're going to talk about differences between the NES and the Famicom. Uh, we're talking about how short the fucking Famicom controller cords were. <laughs> wow. uh, Rob the Robot, the Light Gun, uh, Super Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers 2, different okay. Japan and America, chip shortages, hopefully, disc system, hopefully we're gonna game talk about memories, all this. stadium yeah. event, porno <laughs> games, <laughs> cheetah men. Enough. Yes. We'll be back. We'll be back. Oosh. So we're back uh, for our third and final uh, segment in our epic, epic Kevin Gifford special. Howdy, y'all. Yes. Um, I believe and, it's an NES. It was supposed to be an NES special, but it turned into a Kevin yeah, Gifford special. Which exactly. is Exactly. But now it's both because uh, Kevin is going to hold court and we are going to ply him with questions and queries and cues and our own little memories and uh, odds and ends on the NES. This segment basically has... Very little structure, except that I have different points that I know we want to hit. Um, sure. But, Kevin, why don't we start off with um, talking about... Uh, and actually, I should say, before we get too heavy into this, one has been doing a lot of excellent stuff around yes. the anniversary this month um, of the uh, the NES. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Frank Cifaldi yes. has yes. been doing an absolutely tremendous job on that sort of thing. He has been interviewing folks such as Howard Phillips and Gail Tilden, who mm-hmm. have really not talked too much about the NES uh, up until now, which is funny because both of them were involved with the NES from the very beginning. Right. right. And, and they were part of the crew that was moved out from Seattle to Jersey to like make I, the warehouse and everything. Yeah. And, and real quick, before we get too far into it also, we have around here somewhere we have the uh, game spy quarterly issue five there it is a beautiful beautiful uh fit for framing coffee table quality book we got the the uh, hardcover from mr jeremy Parrish himself when he was out here for tgs yes many thanks for that it's a really cool it's themed around the um the nes um you can find it at uh, gamespike.net um I think it's a nineteen dollars for the standard version, forty three dollars for the deluxe hardback one, which we have, which is awesome. I, I, I do have to say, 
boy, 43 bucks is a bit of money, but you may think it's a bit of money when you're just ordering this off the internet, but now that I have this hmm. right in my hands, hmm. oh, good heavens. <laughs> oh, There's a lot heavens. of content in there. Right. It touches on pretty much every major every major and mostly minor game and, and lots of good content, lots of reading in there. So. I like, too, that it's, it's actually divided up by era. Um, they start off with... Um, the, uh, the 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 game coming out the black the black box games that it goes into right, they even right. have the different eras are named cool it's like the fun club playing with power aging gracefully and then um, active retirement active retirement yep. yeah and um, they have things on all the important figures Yamuchi Arakawa Lincoln Tilden like you mentioned Hank Rogers Phillips uh, different games different little weird esoterica all other stuff so it's just really cool well put together the cover of it looks really cool and the back is, uh, is awesome as well you just yeah. have to look on uh, gamespot.net you can Seems see what I'm guiding. talking about yeah it's a really cool screenshot as the back cover but um it's actually funny because it's something that me and Kevin talked about doing something similar, a coffee table book about five or six years ago for the 20th. Was it for the 20th anniversary? It would, it would have been, been the 20th, 20th yeah. 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 So this is in 05. But, um, but anyway, definitely check that out um, for Game more about what we're talking about. Right. But, uh, so anyway, Kevin, let's uh, jump into it. So uh, why don't we start off talking about the like what you know about the development of Famicom the, uh, and uh, the NES. Certainly. Well, uh, the Famicom, of course, got starts. Oh, good heavens! A long time ago, back in 1983, and it began development back in 1982. There were chiefly three people involved with the development of the of the Famicom. Mm-hmm. One was Gunpei Yokoi, who is a very famous man, of course, creator of the Game & Watch, creator of the Game Boy to some extent, Virtual Boy, Virtual Boy, uh, the patent holder for the control pad as we know it today, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know as opposed to the joystick. Mm-hmm. Another man would be Masayuki Uemura, who was the head of R&D development number two, I reckon, in, in uh, Nintendo. Uh, did a lot of the Famicom's development, did a lot of the NES's development, too. The U.S.'s version of development, along with, alongside, uh, what that was his name, uh, U.S. Um, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Actually, I have no idea. <laughs> I know exactly <laughs> who you're talking about, but I forgot his name. Um, uh, the guy who, basically, he designed the, NES, the AVS, right? And then they didn't, they didn't like right. the design. Because the NES originally was a quite different looking machine. It's on the actually they have a prototype on display at the Nintendo World Store in, in uh, New York, which is awesome. You can see it. But uh, yeah. God, I forgot his name. Lance something, right? Uh, it looks not too far from what it ended up as, uh, right? But uh, same. you can see some of the similar stylings, yeah. But I mean, it was it was more uh, like uh, I mean the coloring to, scheme. And it looked a bit more like computer. Yeah, the color scheme was the same, right? right. It had wireless controllers. Maybe the dude's du- name is Lance Barr. There you go. And. 25 years later, he is still with Nintendo of America yes. doing uh, design work. Really? Yes, God indeed. bless the guy. He's been there for a while, but, you know, the Super Nintendo U.S. version, nah, <laughs> not so much about that design. But, yeah, he has right been around. And anyway, NES. yeah. Uh, so there's Uemura, there was uh, Yokoi, and there was one other man. His name was Genyo Takeda, mm. uh, who, if you ever read Game Over by David Sheff, which came out back in the early 90s, you would know all three of those people a great deal at the time. Um, he, I believe he was head of R&D 3 over at Nintendo, and therefore he was, uh, you would know him a bit more for software than hardware. He was one of the main dudes behind Punch-Out. Right. It's one of the main dudes behind Star Tropics. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a lot of the NES games that were more meant for the overseas market as opposed to the Japan market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
those three people came up with it. And if you know, if you've ever seen a picture of the Famicom, it's a very interesting system, especially compared to the competition at the time, which was the Atari Choices Hundred, the Cassette Vision from Epic, and all that sort of thing. And it's very interesting to see the differences between the Famicom and the NES because, you know, in terms of what they were aiming at for the Japan market, for the U.S. market, right? Uh, for the Japan market. It was a toy. The Famicom right. was a Very toy. Much a toy. Right. Uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi, the president of Nintendo at the time, his only real guidance to the development team for the Famicom was, make me something that I can sell for 14,800 yen. <laughs> Which, <laughs> Which is, I don't know what that was back then, probably about $200 or so, right? I would imagine. Uh, less, le- less, than, less than, than the other side of it. Now it's, yeah, a su- 60, it, it, 60 let 70 me bucks. Make me a super cheap system that I can sell billions and zillions of mm-hmm. and do whatever you have to come up with that. And yes, yeah, still make it, you know, the next step forward from what's available at the market now. And so they have taken, you know, and so uh, Takeda, Uemura, uh, Yokoi had to do everything they could to cheap up the system. Uh, this bit of trivia came out recently on you know the English websites on sort of thing. The reason why the Famicom is red and white, of course, as opposed to the NES, is because it just so happened that white and that dark red you see in the Famicom, those just happened to be the cheapest <laughs> colors of plastic. That were available at the time. That's, That's amazing, isn't the, the it? The eight colors. The eight four colors. <laughs> yes. those, are the, those have become when you the think eight four. You think cheap. Very symbolic <laughs> colors, oh, indeed. Interesting. So that was because they could get. That's what they could get cheap. It was that not was, around that, any design sense that, at all. That, that was the reason why it's red and white. Wow. And um, it's kind of. Was it off white or did it just become that like the um, like, <laughs> like the yellowy white? Yeah, did it just yellow it's in the sun? Or? It's, it's not like perfectly white, is it? I believe. Well, eggshell white. It, it, it's it been is. A while. I wasn't around in 1983 in Japan, so I can't tell you what a brand new Famicom looked like at mm. this point. But it's always been off white in my mind. Right. 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 Okay. Well, certainly. So anyway, yeah. So um, so cheap that, was the guiding principle behind this. Cheap and also toy oriented. Mm. As you know, with the Famicom, you have a lever. Which you can push the lever to pop out the cartridge right. Right. from the slot. It's top loading system, unlike the U.S. version. Very true. The first U.S. version. Right, right. Yeah. And the funny thing is, you really don't need this lever. You can just take the cartridge out any time you want to. Right. And the reason why they put that in was Yokoi, Gunpei Yokoi, thought it would be a bit more fun. If he had a lever which you could push, and it would pop out the cartridge like, <laughs> put, like, like a toaster. Right. right, and that was literally the his problematic bubble, exactly. If you will. And that was, and that was his, that was the design principle for the for that uh, aspect of the Famicom. It's pretty amazing. Were the yeah. cords only like ten inches long for this same reason as well? <laughs> like, what was the de- like? Well, Super Famicom was the same way. It was, it was ridiculous how short. You have to think. Well, Kevin's probably going to come up with a more deep and, and reasonable reason for this, but I would think it's simply a matter of Japan. Your average home. home in Japan right. is not that big to begin with, right? right? I was thinking more along the lines of kids like to sit close to the TV, so. That was, imagine how the gaming environment was at home at the time. Mm. You had a TV. It would not be a very big, at the most, it would be 21 inches, right? Right. And therefore, you would always want to sit as close to the mm. TV as you possibly right. could. 
And so, therefore, there was not the demand for it. Actually, the PC Engine in Japan has the exact same problem. Right. Even yes. though th- even though those controllers are detachable. Right. The, the cores are super, 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 super tiny. <laughs> How many supers is that? <laughs> so super. Yeah. Oh, super, super short, I think you mean. Not ti- not tiny, necessarily, no. but tiny. short. Right, right. Yeah. They were short. But, yes. but, but, right. Yeah, it was probably, yeah, it was probably all of those things, and it probably didn't hurt on the uh, cost of it, too, that it was right, like yeah. a, a two feet long. But that used to be mm. a huge thing with Japanese. The thing is, the size of Japanese homes hasn't really changed, but the right, controller right, length true. has. It affected me I, in the Super Famicom era, Super Japanese Super Nintendo, because I yeah. imported an ASCII pad when the Super Famicom first came oh. out. My controller was like so tiny. I think, <laughs> a, a real quick, just like a nice aside, like a nice way of seeing, I, I don't know what the U.S. advertising is, is like or going to be like for, the, for uh-huh. the Mario collection, but the Japanese ad for it is really awesome and yeah. kind of recreates the whole thing. It has the guy close to the TV on the tatami mats, turns on the TV, switches it to three, yep. turns on the Famicom. And the part that I love that I forgot is just that you turn on Super Mario Brothers, there's no music, there's no nothing. It's just, no. you just hear the TV <laughs> itself humming, yep. which I had completely forgotten all about. But yep. that sound, like for me, totally hit the, yeah. the Natsukashi, the like old, you know, nostalgia, nostalgia yeah, feeling. Yeah. Like, the, yeah. old, the old RF uh, antenna sound. Yeah, yeah. right. And then, of course, there's the blowing the cartridge and popping and in. And then there's that whole aspect yeah, of it. Why don't you talk about that? Talk about the whole uh, top loading in the Japanese system versus the some more like VCR like uh, was ZIP uh, system. What was the acronym well, you for? You may think of ZIF, but um, yeah, a zero insertion force. But it'd be a bit different. Um, Why well, that kind of gets over to the development of the NES in of itself, of course, right? Um, uh, you know, Lance Barr, who was uh, one of the main developers of the NES, originally they produced a console called the AVS, the Advanced Video System. Right. They showed this at the Winter CES in January of 1985. Right. That was back before they had distributed it. For a time, they were talking with Atari right. to distribute it, and that one wound up falling by the wayside. Which and, is so crazy. Oh, yeah, it is. One of it's the great still, blunders of video game history. It's still, it's still up to some debate whether... Atari was ever serious at all, or if they were just trying to keep Nintendo delay, right, right, right. But either way, Atari did not go into it. But one way or another, the industry as we know it would be completely different potentially had Atari actually published that the NES. It's also a good question as to whether Atari really had the money for it because you're in 1984 and Atari, Atari, right? They were already at the kind of hurting at that yeah, point. Yeah, they were, they were against the ropes. The video game industry, it's really difficult to communicate exactly how tough the video game industry was, A4, A5, right. in the U.S., unless you're actually living through it. Right. Just the view of it was that it's over. That was the fan. Mm-hmm. That was like the hula hoop. That thing happened. It's over. Right. Like it's, it, it was, moved on know, to computer yeah. games, but the console was like a dead idea. Basically. It was that it, year's Cabbage Patch Kids or whatever. It was over, and that it, was precisely. it. Um... And so Nintendo, if they wanted to make the Famicom a success in the U.S., they had to do something so that um, you know toy sellers, toy retailers, would not think, "Oh, great, it's another Atari system." Boy, right, right. Boy, 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 big whoop. And so, as um, Frank Cifaldi talks about all over his one feature, he interviewed Howard Phillips, Gail Tilden, folks who were intimate with the launch of the NES in the U.S. They did everything they possibly could to make make it seem like this was a video game system unlike anything you've ever seen before. Didn't they not even... They didn't use the word video game, right? They called they it an ne- entertainment system. They never used the word video game. Right. They called it an entertainment system. Game the, packs. The cartridges you put in were game packs. Yep. 
and in made the it very, more look like a computer was the idea of making more look like, like a, a stereo higher, deck, like, a VCR like basically like an AV or, component, right, very much so. And the center of this strategy, for better or for worse, was Rob, right? With, with the robotic, robotic operating, operating buddy. buddy. <laughs> now I had to keep in mind, the NES came out in October of 1985 in the U.S. This was before Super Mario Brothers. Right. They did not have Super Mario Brothers for the launch of the NES in the U.S. That was not until February 1986 when they test marketed in other cities like Los Angeles and that sort right. of thing. And so for New York, they launched. They you know they did the test market in New York because you know they figured uh, Alec, you know, Minoru Arakawa, the president of Nintendo America at the time, and for much of the NES's reign, thought mm-hmm. you know if you know, paraphrasing the Frank Sinatra song, if you can if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty true, though. That, that true was their thinking. I mean, it's documented. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So they did the test market in Toy Stores in New York City, uh, northern New Jersey, all that sort of thing, and. Because you know they asked me about they had 17 games which they launched with, which is you know you, you probably know it is you know Popeye, Kung Fu, Urban Champion, Sarah, 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 the, all the all the, the black, black box, box games, all the original black box games except for Super Mario Brothers. And they decided to you know because they wanted to make this video game system different from anything else for it, they made the robot the cent the cent basically the center of their uh, advertising strategy. Right. And you can see in the very first commercial, which I showed in the New York, New Jersey area during that time, 1985, you can see that commercial on, in the one-up article. Oh, the egg cracking, right? Yeah. 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 Rob being birthed from an egg. <laughs> they it's so they funny, too, because the props are so cheap. It's just like a, two pieces of the, like, yeah. start, like this, like, plastic egg sort of, like, fall to the side. Yeah. <laughs> they but have, like, that, a high spotlight on them. That commercial talks about Rob, and then it talks about the zapper, the mm-hmm. light gun. And that's nearly it. Nearly, the only game which they show in that commercial, which does not use the robber zapper, I think Kung Fu was the only one. Uh huh. Oh right, yeah. The other ones were like Gyromite and uh, Gyromite, Duck Hunt Duck and Hogan's Hunt, Alley. Hogan's Alley. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, it was a very, I think, in retrospect, a very good strategy because. Yeah, what else could they do? Otherwise, it would be just another random Asian gaming system of which, at the time, there were tons of Asian, random Asian computers, MSS-compatible, non-MSS-compatible, coming into the U.S., being shown to CES, mm. and going nowhere, selling maybe 10000 if that. So how did the NES do uh, coming out in New York in their little test marketing schema? Well, in October the 10th of 1985, it was a Thursday, uh, Nintendo of America, all 12 of them, um, had a launch party at a nightclub in New York. One of those, this being, being 1985, basically your typical Studio 56 type nightclub mm-hmm. in New York. 54, but okay. <laughs> well, I'm from Philadelphia, so you know, I, 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 I'm not quite as New york as you Close are. Close enough, yeah. It wasn't the 70s anymore, so I might have <laughs> turned it into Studio 56. But it's a sequel. Go ahead, yeah. And uh, Gail Tilden and Howard Phillips attended this um, launch party. Mm-hmm. And they were doing blow off of hookers' asses. <laughs> and they said... <laughs> well, I don't think they said anything about blow, blow and hookers' asses. No, no, no. no. They, uh, while they were doing blow off hookers' asses, they said... Well, what would they say? I don't know. No, I'm you just tell saying. us what happened. At the <laughs> what, what, what actually happened is basically the question. It was, it, was, it was not a popular party. That's oh, basically okay. what I'm getting at. Right. It was mostly the people directly related to disturbing the NES. And it, it was basically a, a, a 
wrap up party for Nintendo of America. One oh, day is what it turned okay. into. They invited all the press people, all the all the retailer people. No one showed up. Mm. Um, and then the following weekend, October the twelfth, the more or less official launch of the Nintendo Entertainment System in the U.S. It was at FAO Schwartz on Fifth Avenue. I'm sure you know exactly where I'm t- uh, talking about. I've been there uh, in the past, mm-hmm. and they had a huge ass display for the NES. Huge, incredible amount of space they were going to. They had a huge, like, you know, blown up ROB robot. Mm-hmm. They made the LED on the head of the Rob robot out of a rubber ball. Um, <laughs> nice detail. Yeah, che- cheapness was an important aspect of the NES's launch in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and so you know, Gail and Howard were there, and they were just you know trying their hardest to demo this unit. And they finally had their first sale. And believe it or not, their first sale was a guy bought the system and he bought all the launch games too. And that man's name. Cliffy B. Howard well, Lincoln. Oh. No, I've, I'm actually, I, do, do, does, is it known? Because everybody says that he was from a competitor. A competitor bought the games. But which competitor? Well, yeah. Uh, Gail Tilden, uh, I guess, you know, in the article, he dem- she demurred from identifying the guy. He always, she always okay. said that it was a competitor. Boo. So we have to imagine it was like a Sega guy or an Atari guy or Couldn't somebody. have been anything besides Sega, in my opinion. Because yeah. Sega was based in New York at the time. Ah. Uh, Okay. Sega, you know, Sega's arcade distribution. So, okay. yeah, so how did it do? Let's, let's... It did not do super, but it did well enough, mm. such that Nintendo of America continued distribute, continued test marketing uh, throughout the rest of the winter going into 1986. Right. And by February 1986, they had Super Mario Brothers in Los Angeles. And at that point, they no longer needed gimmicks. That's when... An- that's, that's, when, when, they they that's when it began to take off. Right. And full distribution, I believe, began later on that year. Mm. And then a year later, they brought the official Nintendo Player's Guide, which was required reading amongst us grade schoolers. I still have my copy. Yeah. Uh, my copy was too torn up to save. I'm uh, sadly. Sad to hear it. Too yeah. many trips to the bathroom with that. Uh, <laughs> mine actually got destroyed in a flood. Serious. Yeah. Really my rough. house uh, flooded. We had to replace all the carpets in my... Uh, beloved Nest Strategy guy. Died good with story. It. You have to. You just have to show us all up every, each time, don't you? I know. I, I have full <laughs> of good stories. So Alakawa. <laughs> anyway, so yes. you know, Minoru Alakawa. Yes. Budgeted about fifty million dollars for the launch of the, of the NES. Is that fifteen or fifty? Fifty. Okay. Uh, and believe it or not, even in nineteen eighty five, that money gets eat, eaten up quickly when you're trying to distribute yourself across about two hundred stores. Mm. Was the original launch. Um, Window yeah. across New York, New Jersey, FEO Schwartz being the um, flagship one. Fifty million dollars across two hundred stores in two states, really. TV. Wow, makes That's it makes it rough. A lot of money in nineteen eighty five. They they, oh, they had a lot of TV ads. They had a lot you know they had a lot of distribution that sort of thing. And plus, okay. getting all of and you know they they also had the warehouse which they were renting out in New Jersey at the time. During a, during one point, they had a mystery oil drum show up at the warehouse. Somebody dumped toxic waste at their at warehouse. Really? Yes. Interesting. Um, Fell off a Donkey Kong. However, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. yeah Howard, you know, I, Mario, I, I believe it was, manager complained. I, I, believe it was Phil, I believe it was Howard that uh, uh, had that anecdote in the one article. They had a mystery oil can show up at, 
uh, at the side of the warehouse one day, and they had to call, you know, they had to call, you know, the police, and then therefore the, the, um, <laughs> the police, the popo. He's yeah, from Texas. I, yeah, right. <laughs> Apolog- apologies. We should, we should speed this up a little bit, or we're going to be doing a 27-hour yeah, podcast. Yeah, so. then, then I, May 1st. I, I, I want to keep listening. Well, yeah, we, we got yeah, to get gotta, through some shit. So I, I have to go home eventually today. Right. Uh, I, 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 I apologize for that. But anyway... Uh, it was not a very huge launch in terms of the amount of people that were involved. Like I said, it was about 12 people. And they had a pretty big budget, but they had to spend it all on all this distribution stuff, all this warehouse banking stuff, all this TV ads, all this sort of thing. And so it was very much a fly-by-night operation despite that. And plus which, they were trying to do all this in the midst of Hurricane Gloria, which uh, yeah. hit the east coast of the U.S. in uh, September of 1985. And you know, this would be, you know, if you lived in the east coast at that time, you would remember it. It was extremely rainy and windy all that whole time. It was not really a sort of time you would want to go out and buy some toys for your kids definitely right right well wait, so we're now talking about the uh the nes and we were going to talk a little bit about the differences in the the hardware between the two systems in the design and that sort of thing yes sir yeah well, well, as, we, as, as we were talking as we were talking about the nes yeah as you know, the famicom was meant to be a toy from the very beginning right it was meant to be interesting to kids mm-hmm. first first and foremost the NES, on their hand, was meant to be unlike any other video game console of the past. Supposed to look sleek and more sophisticated, had and had to have a bit more reserved colors than you know dark red and bright white. Right. It was more gray, and, you know, gray and darker gray. Right. Uh, so and- what about the loading? What about that? The whole so the blowing on the cartridge thing like transcended that just kind of spontaneously happened in america happened in happened everywhere pretty much japan yeah. and that wasn't that had nothing to do with the different any any anything difference between the 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 systems no. but that that's i that to me was interesting at least to see the japanese commercial recently i mean you know yeah, about it before too. that but right. yeah everyone did it everyone just kind of spontaneously came up with it but they told you not to right because you get spit on the cartridge so you were supposed to take like a, yeah. like a swab to it or whatever <laughs> right everybody yes. had their own trick right like I, I, right. I did the rubbing alcohol thing I would put cute, rubbing alcohol on a q-tip and then clean the connectors and it worked perfectly really like, yeah the games would work perfectly again interesting now the reason why that happened was the Famicom and the AS used the same type of connectors inside the console and the contest on both of those would eventually What's where I'm looking for? They would eventually decode. They would, they would, they would wear down. They were originally, if you can imagine, they were a bit sprung out at first, and then eventually, if you kept on sticking cartridges out and in and out and into them, they would eventually, you know, kind of get a bit more recessed, and that was what caused NESs and Famicoms to become unable to. Read cartridges, and it was the problem was a bit more pointed on the NES because it had the lockout chip, and lockout chip made the cartridges a fair bit more intolerant mm. of oh. uh, you know you know bad reads on individual uh, input lines. But why would blowing on it really do? Anything? Or was I it never really actually heard that it don't blow on it. Like I'm, I mean, no, I, I, I never I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. Really? it was basically mm-hmm. that you would mm-hmm. that your spit would get on it, and uh, right. that was the it's idea. It's okay that for you them to get wet. You could totally wet those connectors. <laughs> it's funny because I heard that as a kid, and I would always like try and blow it. Okay, I'm not gonna get any spit on it. You know, I right. like, blow in the circle. There was <laughs> absolutely dirt on the connectors because what I would do, and I think a Nintendo guy might have told me this or something on on the on their you know counselor line or whatever. But like you put rubbing alcohol on a Q-tip and you clean the connectors, and the Q-tip was black. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah, obviously yeah. dirt. Proper thing to do. They'd sell right. at Blockbuster or whatever. That's basically what the cleaning kits right. were. More yeah, or less. 
exactly. Only they this w- was better because you could clean it, you know, yourself. But Nintendo had an official clean, yes, even right. Yes, yeah, indeed, indeed. But yeah, blowing on it was basically. I mean, the cartridge was generally not the problem, right? I mean, unless it was picking it was, right up off of the there was there was other stuff itself. too that was different as well, right? I mean, like the controllers uh, on the Famicom were were connected. Of course, yeah. The yeah. the the, uh, the controllers on Famicom were not detachable. In other words, right. yeah, um, Instead, the Famicom had an expansion port in the in the front center of it, and so if you wanted to get another joy, uh, you know, a new joystick, third or party controller, third or party controller, Famicom, you would attach it to the expansion controller. Right. On the NES, this is you know the NES. Uh, the original NES, not the not the uh, remade one, has the expansion under the slot still, but it's inaccessible. It's under the system. Right. They use, well, it's accessible. You just have to squeeze that little gray block and pull it off. But yeah. nobody ever did anything they to connect used it, to it. They used it for nothing. Right. Uh, there was actually a rumor for a long time that the Super Nintendo, when it came out, EGM had run this rumor, the Super Nintendo would connect to the old Nintendo. Remember it was going to be an add-on at first, was mm. the big rumor? Yeah, and I would connect that. to the expansion that. port under the system, but that never came to pass. You know, I always wondered what that was for as a kid. Like, I, I, I like to open things up and break them. Well, if the disk system had ever come out in the U.S., you imagine that's where it would have been connected. So we'll, so. Get to, huh. we'll get to that in a second, but let's stay with the hardware differences. Mm. So the mm. microphone... Of course, yes. uh, the controller two on the Famicom had, instead of uh, start and select buttons, yeah, start and select buttons in controller two was a NES innovation, believe it or not. Right. Instead of start and select buttons on the controller two, it had a mic, in you know, right, right in the middle of the controller there. Just and, bizarre to me. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could you could talk into this mic, go ah. It would play on the TV like a Mr. Microphone. Right. I'm dating myself by saying Mr. Microphone. No, course, no. But. Hey, good looking. <laughs> we'll be back to pick you up later. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but as far as the NES was concerned, it really cannot do very much as microphone. It could detect if basically it was it was a strictly digital thing. Either yeah. it could it could detect that sound was being blown into the microphone, or it could detect that it was silent. Right. That was all they could do. So what was what all was it used? So the one place that i know where this was used and i only know it from um from game center of uh, uh, cx is that kid icarus oh yeah in kid the, icarus yeah, right if you too. yell yeah. in the in you, i think it's in the shop is that how you, you get yell, the, the black market guy to lower his prices yeah something? exactly yeah. Okay. you yell at the shopkeeper and right. he lowers his prices okay. in the nes version i believe you press up an a to do that right or something right. along those lines a code or something yes. yeah but in the famicom version the distance version you yelled into the microphone you fuck Fucking prices are too high. <laughs> so yeah. what? What else was that used for? Like, what was uh, the idea behind putting that in there in the first place? Do you have a, a, again any it, idea? Again, it was the Mister Microphone toy thing. It was a toy. It was, it was because this thing was meant to be a toy. And okay. when we think about if you're producing a toy, you need to have a lot of stuff, which is you know something which kids have never seen before. Something which it's is like really a gimmicky kind of right, thing. Right. Gimmick is very is very much the best way to put it. And some have said the Famicom was experimental too, because it was kind of the new generation right. of game consoles at the time, as opposed to the cassette vision, the Atari was et cetera. Et cetera. Well, what else? What, what other games or uh, how else was I used? Uh, Takeshi no Tosenjo. Ah, this uh, is the oh one. god, Beat Takeshi. Beat Takeshi is like garbage game fucked right? up crazy yes. ass like i hate video games the game yes indeed uh, <laughs> it's a very legendarily bad game on the famicom and um uh without getting into too much depth there was right. actually a karaoke section in that game and you yelled into the microphone for that one and you had to you know you had to sing at relatively the right right amount of time or else it wouldn't it would say oh you're a, you're a crop singer 
Basically, it was rock band before yeah. there was rock band. That's, that's, <laughs> right. that's that basically they they had rock band the idea for a Beatakeshi invented rock band, a very ghetto rock band to be sure, but, but more or less. So why did they? Is there any evidence of why they cut it out of the, or did they consider it for the U.S. version, the, the microphone? I would say. I, this I, is conjecture, I, right? There's I, yeah, no, yeah, there's I, no. I, I did not. Yeah, I, on the record, I don't know anything offhand about that. But right, I can conjecture that. Well, heck, by 1985, the Famicom had been out for two years, and they probably saw no one's using this dang thing. Right, right, <laughs> right. It could have been a cost-cutting thing potentially. Exactly, Another thing yeah. is that since the controllers were detachable, you want them all to be the same, right? So that's probably why they also all could also be buttons. a power issue because of that. It's not getting the same amount of uh, power. Maybe it's not connected. Mm. Yeah, whatever. Them, by the way. Wait. Uh, <laughs> oh, but, snap. So, so hey, other, I'm just uh, put a little technical. Spin. Okay, sure, sure. <laughs> other uh, final like hardware differences. So the NES had the uh, audio, the uh, left and right. Um, uh, wait, wait, wait. You're no. talking about stereo AV? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The and the original NES uh, had. AV inputs, if I'm not uh, Not had, video, they had, they, but they had, audio. Well, they did... Yeah, they did mono. Right, yes. right. They, the original S was actually a pretty a pioneering system in that respect. They had uh, uh, composite, that's what I'm worried? Yeah. Composite, mon, mon, composite, mono, composite. video, yeah. and mono audio, right. which, you know, for 1985, that was pretty friggin' high-end. They're... The ori- not even the original PC Engine had composite, mm-hmm. and that came out in 1987. Right. And um, so it was. It was a pretty decent, decent system for its time. Plus, which you know, for your one hundred ninety nine dollars, yeah, you got the system. You got two controllers. You got the Rob. You got the, the deluxe Zephyr, set. Yeah, two you got, games. And you got Duck Hunt. And you got um, Gyromite. Gyromite. And then you know, a few months later, you got Super Mario Bros. with that too. Right. Right. Boy, n- yeah, Nintendo was cutting their own throat with that to some extent. Uh, but it all panned out because once you got to 1987, good heavens. Yeah. My goodness. No. Nope. Was- Whoa, Nelly. <laughs> <Wow>. No, Lily. <laughs> okay. So, so, uh, so like, uh, moving on, like, the next big thing that I wanted to talk about was, uh, let's talk about Super Mario Brothers. You, you touched on it a little bit. Um, different, A lot of different trivias come out this last couple weeks and this month on the anniversary. Right, um, it's now 25 years old in yeah. Japan. And as of this month, you, Kevin, you wrote up something for One Up, um, translating uh, some interview stuff um, yep. with uh, Miyamoto mm-hmm. from uh, from yeah from Famitsu the magazine. There's some it touches on it, I guess, a little bit in the booklet that comes with the at least the Japanese version of Super Mario Collection. But like among other things, that up was going to be jump. There was not going to be a jump button, and the mm-hmm. instead the button was going to be shooting bullets. Yes, well. Um you know, uh, it's very interesting. The you know the Super Mario 25th anniversary Wii thing that they put out uh, this week in Japan. It comes with a booklet which um, it has which has reproductions of some of the original design documents that Miyamoto himself hand wrote. Um, uh, it's crazy. It's graph paper where the levels themselves are actually like colored. Yeah, right in. now we're looking at it, and I can see level one, two basically drawn out. That's on, just yeah, it's insane. insane. Like, yeah, the, the, he did that on graph paper too, and not like tried it out in like some kind of level editor or whatever. Yep. Is is amazing. Well, it's in, his background planning in, sheet. You know, in 1985, this was the most efficient method to do it was right. on graph paper. Right. And um, one of the interesting things about the development of Super Mario Brothers is that original, you know. 
when you think about the control scheme of the Super Mario Brothers, it's very intuitive when you think about it now. A, to jump. B, to you know, hold on. B, to run. Right. Uh, and also shoot fireballs when you're fiery yeah, Mario. Right. But it took a little bit to get to, uh, get to this thing. In, in the original design documents, uh, it is B, to run. B, to dash. A to A to fire uh, mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. and in order to jump, you had to press up on the control pad. Right. Uh, and you know, when I say A to fire stuff, you know, Mario was not only firing fireballs originally. Uh, Miyamoto was talking about how uh, he wanted to have a section, basically a shooter section. He wanted to have Mario going up on a cloud and firing at I don't know enemies of some sort. But then he's, you know, but then eventually they cut that out because they wanted to concentrate on the basic, you know, the quote unquote athletic action, Mario jumping, right, jumping on enemies. Uh, the cloud sections sort of that are left over are remnants of that idea. Basically. Yes, indeed. Yeah, right. they up on the vinyl, automatic sort of thing. scrolling levels. It may be the flying like cheap cheeps and uh, yeah, exactly. those things too, presumably. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting because up on when Mario is unused, basically, right? So you you would say, I mean, besides the climbing up. Uh, yeah, right. the only the only thing you use up for is climbing up vines. Yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, like from a game design standpoint, you might say like, oh, well, you have this unused thing; it's more elegant. Use that or whatever. But like, yeah, how different would that be? Oh, indeed. Yeah. Well, the other aspect that really uh, you know got us to where the current control scheme is is that you know A to fire, B to dash. They found that you know if you could just press A to fire all you want to, that would give you too much of an advantage if you were just you know just run forward and keep on you know shooting all them as you want to. Right. And so they have it now. So where you press B, you, know, you press B once, you shoot a fireball, and you hold on B, you run. You can't shoot any more fireballs while you're running. Right. Right. And so that's how they got to that conclusion hmm. to do that. It's pretty it amazing. All, it all, it's all just a redefining design process, and it's that same process really, which kind of got the current plot of Super Mario Brothers, actually. Right. Uh, which we have today. Right, right, right. Yeah, th- you know, they talk about that a little bit, too, right? Oh, indeed. Um, you know, when I think about the plot of Super Mario Brothers, you know, Mario's in the Mushroom Kingdom. It's a touching tale. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a very... It's a, it gets, brings a tear in my eye to this day. I tell you <laughs> what. Oh, dear me. Um, but the reason that plot... You know, why is Mario fighting turtles and all crap like that? Why, Kevin? Well, I'll tell you why, Mark. <laughs> all right. So originally there was Mario Brothers. Mario Brothers came out in I believe 1983 in the arcades. Mm-hmm. It was also ported to the Famicom. It was, it was one of the launch games on the Famicom. And if you remember Mario Brothers, you know you're in a, a single screen field, and you're you know you can jump and hit the wall and knock over turtles, right. and hit, hit the ceiling or the floor. <clears throat> yeah, you can hit the ceiling with your fist and knock over turtles, right. and, and then you would hit and then you would actually run into turtles and kill them at that point. If you actually jump on a turtle while it's upright, right. then you die. Right. And, you know, Marbos came out, and, uh, you know, when they were originally thinking about what, what game we're going to do next, when Miyamoto was thinking what game we're going to do next, he thought, you know what? If you jump onto the shell of a turtle, who is going to win out in that battle, really? <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you. A turtle is not going to kill you if you jump on a shell. You're no. going to kill the turtle if you jump on a shell right. from about five feet up high, the way the Mario can jump. <laughs> right. And so... Simple physics. Yeah, really. And so the basic idea just sprung out completely off of that. Let's have a game where you can jump onto turtles and they will be uh, disabled somehow in the way that you know it is in current Mario. It mm-hmm. goes into a shell and then you can kick the shell and do all that, that sort of thing. Right. And... Um, 
from that, and a separate thing is that why is it in the mushroom kingdom? Well, uh, Miyamoto was tripping his balls off on <laughs> mushrooms every day, and he just decided to make that the theme of his game. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was illegal even back in 1985 in Japan to trip on <laughs> mushrooms. No, it was actually very legal in Japan actually, yeah, until about it, yeah. yeah until right. about what 2000 or 2002, I think. We are dig- digressing now. Anyway, I, I, I don't want to conjecture on what Miyamoto was on or not on in I have a picture of him from Nintendo that I'll show you that might uh, lend a little evidence to my case. But but um, anyway. So anyway, you know what, what he was saying in the pharmacy interview is that you know there are lots of folk tales, grim fairy tales, etc. But you know Hansel and Gretel going into the forest or other people going to the forest, uh, tripping living, balls on mushrooms, living off of mushrooms, all that sort of thing. And so to, to add a sort of fairy tale aspect to the story, he decided to make the power-up item, mush, uh, a mushroom. Sure. The original aspect of Mario Bros., that was one of the main design aspects, was that Mario could get big and he could get small. Mm-hmm. Very Alice in Wonderland. Very much in that in that respect, actually, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, once the power-up item became mushrooms, plus you know Mario fighting turtles, right. that's pretty much where the plot came from right there. You're, you're in the mushroom kingdom. Um you know, mushrooms are your friends. Uh, living mushrooms like toad are <laughs> mushrooms, your friends. Mushrooms everywhere. Well, and, and the big part didn't really get into it until New Super Mario Brothers on the DS, right? Where that's where they finally like the big part of made it. good. Yeah, on on Mario growing huge. Oh, yeah, like super huge, true. like oh, yeah, yeah, right. But that was an idea that they had for the original one. That they, well, was, honest, I, yeah. I mean, that was the basic idea because you know there was some at the beginning there was some debate about. You know what? Um, you know sh- how? You know it'd be nice if Mario was this size, uh, two sprites by four sprites. Uh, but if you make it that big, then you know the, you're not going to be able to see far enough ahead right. on the stage as you scroll. So Miyamoto's idea was: okay, let's have it so that you can be big or you can be small, but let's scale the stage stages such that it's all accessible, even if Mario is small. Hmm. And so that, you know, that's another aspect. That's how the basic design of Super Mario Bros. worked out as well. Interesting. Mm. Oh, interesting. Well, okay. So go go from Super Mario Brothers heading into Super Mario Brothers Two. A lot of people didn't know until much later on, me included, that mm-hmm. Japan Super Mario Brothers Two was not the same Super Mario Brothers Two that we got in America. Indeed. Like let, let's talk about that, that whole saga. Like. The, the Doki Doki Panic thing, like, we can just touch mm. on that. We don't have to go super in-depth. But I'm more interested in, like, yeah, like, the lost levels and, like, the relative time frames of mm. when when people got what and why and mm. why that was – why it was different for America than it was for Japan. Was, and so the lost levels is basically the, the original Japanese Super Mario 2, very different from our Super <laughs> Mario 2, a lot harder. Indeed. Um, I'm actually super curious. Uh, you know, the concept for that game. Do, does, is there? Is there? Is it out there? Like that? This was a game made by the same team who made Super Mario One. Because it feels to me, granted, much after the fact, like a game that was not as well designed as the first game. It's un- unreasonably difficult in places. It just doesn't seem quite as fun. Mm. Well. In order to fully explain that story, let me tell you about the arcade Super Mario Brothers. Okay. It was is this called, the same as the Play Choice 10, or is this a different... No, the Play Choice 10 is just the NES game. Okay. Yes. Um, in the mid-'80s, Nintendo had a arcade platform called the Versus Unisystem. Right. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And part of that, 
uh, you know, one of the games that I released on was versus Super Mario Brothers. Uh, this game, this arcade game, came out sometime in early 1986. I'm not exactly sure when it came out, but it has a. So cop- it came out after the Famicom game. Yes, it did. It oh, has it has a it has a copyright date 1986 within mm. the game. And um, this game is. It's it runs off of NES hardware. It is you know the gameplay is exactly the same as Super Mario Brothers, um, but you know in the start you know most of the most of the original most of the early stages are the same as Super Mario Brothers. Uh-huh. You know some of the extra power ups were removed, like some of the extra one ups and so forth were removed uh-huh. to make it a bit harder. But as you go through the arcade versus Super Mario Brothers, once you get to about World 6, World 7, and so forth, uh, the stages at that point basically are, you know, they are completely different from the NES version. Really? And some of those stages did wind up in the disc system uh, Super Mario Brothers 2. Okay. Uh, not the wind stages. You know, Super Mario, 2, Super Mario Bros. 2 is mo- mainly best known for its wind stages. It's, I believe they start in World 3, oh, World God, 4. Oh, God, right. Those, those are the so worst hard. fucking yeah. things. You basically, yeah, there'll be like a, a big springboard at the start of the stage, and then there's just the wind blowing, and then you just yes. have to kind of figure out and guess. You, you're off screen. Mm. See, that was a terrible idea. Yeah, That's why I asked, was this a different... I almost, you know, almost made you think it was those, designed by um, somebody else. Well, it says it was... For, it, it, the idea was that everyone, you players. played the shit right. Uh, was it Super Players? It I was think they might have done that in English, or whatever. but essentially it was the same idea. Yeah. It was basically, you played the living shit out of Super yeah. Mario Brothers, and you're so good at it. You're jumping backwards, <clears> you know, over stuff. You're doing all of the tricks. You know everything about this game. We're going to mm. make something for you, like super hardcore people basically that's like so hard it's actually going to challenge you no matter how yes. good you are at Mario Brothers. The Super Mario Brothers 2, aka the Lost Levels, they were meant from the start to be like, you know, Super Mario Bros. for advanced players. Mm-hmm. That's why they had the poison mushrooms and right. so forth. Um, right from the start, it's like fucking with you, with your no, ideas indeed. of, oh, this is a mushroom. Actually, it's like a mushroom that will Well, they did want to yeah, or... introduce like the game concepts right away, which makes sense. Right. But... Oh, indeed. Um, so that's how that was. It was, you know, basically a relatively cheap to develop game. It was developed by the Super Mario Bros. staff. Super Mario Bros. 2 was. Uh-huh. Um, so it was a cheap game to prove for the disc system, uh, which Nintendo was really pushing the disc system at the time, of course. Right. They did not produce any cartridge games from 1986 until 1988. Right, hmm. right. Um, and we'll talk about the disc system. We'll talk about it right after this. But let's real quick, let's wrap up with uh, Super Mario Bros. 2. Oh, heck, I think I about wrapped up with Super Mario well, right there. I got one <laughs> thing. So I, I heard somewhere that, like, Mario Brothers 2 was a product of Mari- uh, Miyamoto being depressed or something. Mm. And that like, he was depressed and he just made this game, like, That really sounds hard. kind of ridiculous. I mean, how would anybody really know that? Why would you make a I game? I don't know. He what was it, like, a, he became a sadist, it, in other words, and decided well, about the world. What it, what it strikes me as, looking back objectively at Super know. Mario Brothers 2, is it looks like a basically a big learning experience, right? They, Nintendo kind of got all the knowledge they got now by learning, making mistakes, and I think that was a mistake in the sense that they made a game that wasn't targeted towards a mainstream audience at all. And, you know, I don't up to then, I don't think they had really tried that sort of thing, and I'm sure they learned a ton through that game. Well, yeah, something interesting, too, about Nintendo at that time, and, like, those of us who grew up with it, 
know it, but people even maybe JJ's age might not really realize it. But like every sequel for a while with the Nintendo game was really something different for like right. a little while, right? Like right. true, I don't know. Very true. I was there. I was okay, there. all right, all right. Maybe you're like, you're part like of the three. club. I, Nintendo <laughs> hit my generation exactly. Like okay, point. well, but what I mean is not it's not even from Super Nintendo era, but like it was like from Zelda one to Zelda two was like a radically different departure from Mario right. one to Mario two right. was a more radical departure and then mario 3 returned back to mario 1 zelda 3 returned back to right i'm sorry but, but even yeah, mario 3 sure. was a bit different from the norm like they had the a map and everything no it was a natural evolution and, though and, and, i yeah, think of mario the 1 power ups and it was everything. an evolution yeah. but it was very mu- it was not as weird and off the let's try something sure, like sure, pretty sure. different from the from the next game and uh, like the, the sequels were staggered pretty far apart in in terms of time uh, right. as well but mm-hmm. but anyway um so uh, that's uh, speaking of Super Mario Brothers two. There was like a a big thing also that people might not know who didn't live through it, but there was a chip shortage where there was a time where there was a game. You've had now a, we're talking. You've had this it recently what I with remember systems, about right? Nintendo days. Yeah, you've had it recently <laughs> with systems with the Wii, um, where you couldn't get the system that you wanted. But with games, by and large. If you want the game, you can find it. But like, it was not the case with. I remember Zelda Two. I still remember being that like, "Oh my famous. god, it's sitting in a store." I can't. But believe how much I can of that chip it. shortage was a real chip shortage versus manufactured delays and and you know sh- and shortages to kind of increase consumer demand? Because there was a lot of accusations of that. Right? Was that ever Kevin confirmed? Well, Kevin, take it away, Mister Gifford. I was very. I'm very uh, gifted by the fact that Google. <laughs> Books happens to have a complete run of InfoWorld magazine, which is a trade magazine for the IT industry. Right. And I happened to bring up before this podcast an article that was produced in a June 1988 issue that... Uh, which is dates exactly to the time that this shortage was allegedly happening. Yes. And it confirmed that the shortage was indeed a real thing. Really? It was not talking about any... It was not really talking about any um, you know Nintendo-related thing. Sure. It was just talking about the fact that in 1987-1988, IBM PC-compatible computers were getting very popular right. mm-hmm. at the time. And um, you know, not just for business, but also for the home. Sure. IBM Tandys, yeah, as I think they were Tandys, called at the time. Tandy-compatible. Tandy-compatible, right. especially at the time. <laughs> and so um, when it comes to DRAM, um, uh, dynamic RAM... Um, there, you know, uh, manufacturers in China, Hong Kong, and so forth were shifting over from 256 kilobit RAMs to one megabit RAMs, and so both were in tremendous demand at the time for purposes of computers and also for high-end workstations and all of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, cons- uh, for whatever reason, you know, maybe they were a bit too slow in the draw. Maybe they underestimated the tremendous. Boom! In NES software in a seven eight eight right, that happened right, right. because of Zelda two, Super Mario Bros. two, etc. It was very hard to get that. You know, the demand get, basically far yeah. outseated the supply. I mean, you know, some some outfits got maybe about twenty five percent of their order at that right. time. Hmm. Well, this see this to me is fascinating. I mean, I, we grew up in this time, like, and I remember. So you know, I I would have to think this is interesting to people today who are growing up the games because they have no idea what it was like to live in that era. Basically, trying to what, find trying to find Super Mario Bros. two yes. in about late spring of eighty eight was far harder than any. Like fat toy of Christmas oh, dude, this time. Six months of my Through 1988, that, yeah. I think it was, was every single day calling up my local like KB or my local whatever. Yeah. Did you get Zelda yeah. two yet? No. 
Click next day. Did you get Zelda two yet? No. But, click next day. I mean, yeah. every single day. It was months. Like, through nobody Christmas. knew anything. You'd call Nintendo. They couldn't tell you when it was coming right. out. Like nobody. What knew was the anything. deal with Canada? Like everybody was getting copies through Canada. That's like, how I got the, my Zelda two early. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. And you like the classifieds in the newspaper around that Christmas were like every reason Canada got Zelda two like a month before the U S. Dang. And so that November, they just yeah. And I actually didn't have to buy it. I had, I had a friend at school who paid a hundred dollars for his Zelda two from Canada, and I was so. <laughs> like livid but then I found out that my local video shop I was supremely blessed to have like the most amazing video stores nearby mm-hmm. had it for rent so I got to rent the Canadian version and finished it before it even came out in the US wow. was like a huge deal like cause yeah. you could not get the game anywhere well it was just impossible to find it was I was out but it just you yep. couldn't Super get Mario it Super Mario 2 was the same way and like yeah. it didn't help yeah. that they had like maps and everything in the Nintendo Player's Guide like a oh, year yeah. before it came no, out they were dangling yeah, Nintendo Power was uh, launched by that time too right and it was even worse it was so tantalizing yeah and it's and i love zelda like we are this podcast is pro zelda 2 fuck all y'all zelda 2 is awesome i was playing it last night in the world that don't fucking understand zelda 2 because zelda 2 is the fucking end all be all someday we gotta have a special zelda 2 episode absolutely like about all the differences nothing against link to the past link to the past is good the direction things ended up going was fine but zelda 2 is a fucking amazing game underappreciated underappreciated underperformed like deserved Serves its own little side series. Absolutely, I disagree. Right. Oh, you're off this podcast. That's all right. You won't be here Cut in the two mic. weeks. So yeah, exactly. Uh, Cut them off. No, I, I just. All right, did you uh, in uh, really in Twitter form, which basically means quickly. What is your uh, what what what's your problem with Zelda two? I believe best that- combat in the in the series. That's your problem. Like you don't like the subtlety and the nuance of the uh, the battles. You don't like little two minute fights with the uh, epic. Epic battles with Armored guys. Knights. Yes, exactly. Uh, the game is bloody impossible without any sort of guide, whereas Zelda 1 was possible uh, without a guide. Really? What are you talking about? I didn't use a guide for I Zelda didn't either, 2. I don't think. Not the first time, anyway. So that's it? It's, it's, it's that it's too hard? And also, the they tried to produce a plot element in Zelda 2, which was, at the time, completely inscrutable because the English translation was horrible. Well, fair enough. Right. Yes. And Are you saying that the Zelda one and what, three? What is the plot this? element? You're just talking that they tried to introduce a story. Yeah, I mean, I talked to townspeople, all that sort of thing. I am error. You're not into that. You don't. I'm not into that. I wanted an Very overhead Zelda. I wanted an overhead Zelda. Okay. Why? How many? That was the only side view Zelda in the entire uh, series. Am I right? Essentially, although I would say a lot of Ocarina of Time's like initial like concept design is taken straight from Zelda Two. I mean, even the way mm-hmm. Link looks and 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 everything. But mm-hmm. I mean, you that, had some of the elements of the uh, of the handheld Zeldas when you went down into the dun- you were fighting right, and right. kind of a two D kind of sure sure. Milieu. I will say I still want I still want like either a remake or a actual game wise sequel. No, not Zelda Two as well. But I'm actually oh. talking about Zelda One because he was saying he wanted oh. Zelda Two to be. I, I also love Zelda 1's game design. There has not been a, another mm-hmm. Zelda game like it since, where you are basically dropped in the world and you know nothing. And it's right. like, just go. Well, like, that's, how, that's how a lot of uh, NES games were, of course. Right. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it was fantastic. That's that was a right. great thing about Zelda, was figuring everything out on your own, like going out of order, like whatever you had to do, and that's gone now. I want that. I want a remake. I, I find it interesting that you guys like are talking about the chip shortage and everything. I was a kid. I was probably like eight or nine, and like... You know, I was all about the the NES when I was a kid. Like, you know, every Christmas was 
focused on which Nintendo games I was going to get and stuff like that. And I actually got Mario 2 for the Christmas it came out, and I never knew that there was a shortage or anything like that. I was just like, you know, I woke up one morning, opened up all my presents, didn't find Mario 2, and then like my dad's like, you know, I heard some noises upstairs, and I'm like, oh, oh. Mario 2, oh my god! What I did have problems with was Mario 3, though. Mario 3 we could oh, yeah. not find forever and we oh, really yeah and like uh, it was like one day we had rented uh, um, Legend of the Mystical Ninja or some awful ninja game that never existed on the Nintendo and, but I, well yeah I don't Super remember Alice. I don't know Mm-hmm. Just another ninja game. It was a ninja game. <laughs> um, and um, 3.0. Uh, like it wouldn't it wouldn't work. We had rented it from Blockbuster and it wouldn't work. So Maybe we you were s- trying to cram a Super Nintendo cartridge in your. Uh, <laughs> we didn't notice. Uh, my Super Nintendo story is pretty good. I'll, I'll tell it on the Super Nintendo uh, episode. But right. um, uh, so we went out actually and s- uh, sent my mom out to buy a cartridge cleaner. Oh. And she went out to get it, and she came back with a cartridge cleaner and Super Mario Brothers three, and maybe and the, the best saved. day of my maybe the best day of my childhood. <laughs> Actually, that's kind of funny. I have a similar story. My dad, I'll, I'll give you a short. My dad, I give him one sentence. Even my dad bought me the Legend of Zelda because he wanted to shut me up whilst he could watch the Philadelphia Eagles play the New York Giants <laughs> in, uh, I believe, about the uh, winter of nineteen eighty nine. Very nice. Good enough reason. Very nice. Whatever. And justifies the means, right? You were oh, happy. Indeed. indeed. You yeah. were happy. I remember showing Zelda to my friend and just being like, you're going to buy this game. Like, by the end of this five minutes, I'm going to show you this game. You're going to buy it. I have There's the, no yeah, question. Exactly. I have the most, like, magical memories of these NES games. And I, I, I really want to know, was it because I was young or was it because that era was just very unique and that era is gone now? A lot of it was, like, not having the internet and everything. Right. Do people today have the same thing with, I don't know what... You know, have you seen have Pokemon, you, have you seen videos of the kids opening their Wii's <laughs> and just like going fucking ballistic? Yeah, I have, yeah. yeah, but I almost feel like it doesn't count because yeah, I don't it know. does count. We were kids. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, like yeah. I was I even so. younger than you, and like I went crazy when I got Godzilla. Like I, come on, <laughs> <laughs> the Godzilla for the NES actually surprisingly holds up. Uh, I, I doubt it. But, no, uh, I doubt anyway. That's true. Too. Well, this is great. This is the kind of stuff I wanted to talk about because Zelda, Mario, these like memories are like amazing to me. But let's let's keep moving on. So, what's next on your great list of? Uh, well, the so the disc system uh, we we started to touch on this never system, came out in the U.S. Never, never came, came out in the U.S. Like, did they consider it? Do you know? By the time they would have bothered to consider it in 1987, uh, the price of RAM cartridges had gotten a fair bit cheaper. Uh, the first one megabit game, 120 kilobytes. Uh, for the for the NES was Ghosts and Goblins actually from Capcom and mm. I believe late 1986 in Japan, and so I think that was the first third party game that I saw or played. No, I mean in the uh, U.S. I mean the, Trojan. Me personally, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I saw Trojan, but uh, Ghosts and Goblins was the first yeah. one I bought. Actually, uh, Namco was the first NES uh, Famicom third in Japan, party yeah, way back, right. back in the day. I think. Right. The, the first one, the NES, might have been... It was several ones, I guess, at that point. I, I don't know who would be exactly the first. But by that point, uh, the family disk system is 128 kilobytes per side. Two-sided right. discs. Or was it Sister 4K? I'm not sure, but the point... It's, a man, I mean, it's probably 128 The, the basic yeah. point, though, was that it, right, they sorry, were looking for a cheaper alternative to manufacturing cartridges. And at the time, yes. this made sense because it was discs. You could rewrite right. them. They were affordable to create. And thus the disk system was born. Yes, but even by late 1987, that advantage was lost because right. RAM, even though it was getting a bit scarce, RAM was getting cheap. 
cartridges were getting bigger and ended yes. up you you couldn't you couldn't do the kind of games on disc that you could do on cartridges. Up so. until that point, you know, it was made about thirty two kilobytes, sixty four kilobytes. Super Mario Brothers Super Mario Brothers was only twenty four kilobytes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, game sizes ballooned right immediately after that. And so you got to the point where Super Mario Bros. three was three megabits. Um, the biggest game ever was Just Breed from Enix, released in 1992, megabit cartridge. Wow, so Kirby wasn't the biggest. Kirby's, Kirby was Kirby, six megs. Kirby's Adventure was six megabits, yeah. Huh. Well, so, and the, the, the big, I think the interesting thing for most people about the disc system would be that a lot of the games that they know as like their favorite cart games were uh, originally disc games, yes. right? In Japan, introduced as disc games. The, Zelda 2, Zelda, Zelda 1, Zelda 1, Zelda right? Zelda of course, two, yeah. Uh, Metroid, Metroid, Kid Icarus. I think the most fascinating thing about all that. Castlevania. Castlevania. Castlevania and the yeah. most fascinating thing about all that for people like us, like for me, the disc system was something I came upon much later, right? Like in right. the mid, mid 90s when I first came to Japan, I bought a brand new disc system actually and uh yeah got one of the last ones and um you know the, the hardware is different right so you have games that we know as password games like metroid right. and kid Icarus were save games in japan and you have Castle, castlevania was a save game um was it had save games on right the right which makes a lot more sense oh, like yeah, a lot of that game was brutal yeah little yeah. things make more sense when you know okay this is originally yeah. a disc system game like metroid the password system right like telling a fucking o from a zero in that game know, for example like <laughs> that all that big... password bullshit that and kid icarus it was like wait what was this yeah. really designed so those games were save games and a lot of these games had different music and sound the effects music because, is a right. huge thing big that a lot deal. of people probably Indeed. still don't know the disc system had one one extra Sound voice, chip, right? if or, you will. Yeah, channel, right? I yes. believe. Yeah. I mean, the standard NES has uh, two square uh, two square waves, one uh, triangle wave, one noise wave, and also one PCM vo- wave, which is basically digitized voice. And to that, the disk system added an FM wave, which produces. There's no other way to describe it. Produces a very unique disk system sound, mm-hmm. which you hear in a lot of games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the games like Zelda 2 have completely different music in sections in the Japanese version, yep. and some games have better music, like uh, uh, certain like Castlevania or uh, Contra had some extra... Contra, Contra yeah. has different backgrounds in well, some stages. Uh, I think, well, well, Contra was a cartridge game, but... Um, Contra was... Uh, wait, Contra, least, the, oh, you're, no, he's right. The Contra that was better was the cartridge version that came out much later than the U.S. version. Exactly, right. It was originally right. a so, disc game. Yeah. Right, it was re-released. It was released right, in right. Japan then as a that's cartridge true. that had better... And it, well, and that's, well, that, that was that was the side aspect of the ROM storage actually right. too, because Contra in Japan was two megabits, Contra in the U.S. was one megabit. Right. They got rid of a lot of cutscenes, background, yes. a, some background a full stuff. on a full on mega yeah. ending. Oh, a lot of animation in the back in the backdrops, as you were saying. There was another right. level of parallax on like a couple of those stages. Yep. Yep. And that gets into, uh, sorry, I might be going off your track here, but that makes me think a bit, too, about the whole, there was a lot of games on the NES that had um, special chips in, right. on the no, cartridges yeah, exactly. to like, make the game, well, you know, you more you need the MMC chips, the memory map chips, and... Uh, yeah, so talk, let's talk about that. Like, what are these chips? Why were they there? Well, What's going on? When, uh, mappers, right? Or indeed. I believe yeah. MMC means memory map chip, right? Or memory mapper or uh, something like yeah, that? Yeah, something. Memory, map, memory mapper controller or something, that is, something yeah. like that. You know, when they originally developed the NES, they were really not expecting anyone to produce cartridges, cartridges for it larger than 64 kilobytes. You know, Super Mario Brothers, as I said, was 30, 30 kilobytes. Most of the original Black Box NES games were about 30 kilobytes, 32 kilobytes, 48 kilobytes, if that... And then all of a sudden, you know, the NES became very popular. Boy, we better, you know, 
uh, arcade games are getting really arcade games are getting really more complex. If you want a portable game, we need more memory space, and so they engaged in what's known as bank switching in order to. Yeah, this game very technical, but in order to get the in order to get the CPU, give us the uh, the simple version. Yeah, in order to get the CPU to access Dumb more down stuff for at once, <laughs> um, I'm really sleepy. <laughs> in order to get the CPU to access a lot of stuff at once, you need to you need to uh, have the CPU only look at certain certain parts of the full ROM at once. Right. You can do that uh, via software, and so eventually, you know, games became more complex because you could have larger size ROMs. And so, you know, eventually one megabit became the standard for games, two megabits became the standard for games, some games became, some games became four megabits, yep. and so on and so forth down the line. And in addition, some of these memory mappers, not so much for the NES, but on the Famicom, some of them had extra features. Mm-hmm. Um, well, on the NES, you also had SRAM, that you could save your game. That was a innovation that was patented by Uemura. Uh, Masayuki Uemura was the inventor of battery backup RAM. From Nintendo? From Nintendo. Okay. Wow. Um, uh, and you also those batteries have, are probably dying or dead by now, right? They would say they had. They said they had a five year life on them when you bought them. But like I had games that were well, still working still ten, twelve years later. They still yeah. were batteries still work. But hold on a second though. But aren't we getting so the MMC chips though? This isn't purely megabit size. These are additional chips. Since the hardware couldn't do special functions, these chips were put on the cartridges themselves. Yes, indeed. Kind of like Super the FX. The... They just didn't brand it, right? In right. this era, they, they had much, it, right. but you have to be hardcore to know it. Whereas right. later on, you had the, in the Super NES era, you had, like, for example, the Super FX chip, yeah. where it was like, hey, this is a big deal. Right. Nintendo Power at the time designated if a cartridge was MMC1, MMC3, oh, MMC5. Okay. Yeah. Um, the exact differences between the memory mapper chips are a bit too technical for me to really get into with this podcast, but sure. the biggest difference we could see at the Famicom was that the MSC5 in particular, they allowed you to have different music chips mounted inside the cartridges. Right. So, for example, Castlevania 3. Yes, I was going to bring example. up yeah, yeah. the pinnacle Wait, of the, NES not the, music. Not the pinnacle, but we'll, we'll get into it. Okay. okay. Uh, the, really? The, uh, you, know, you know the NES version of Castlevania 3. In Japan, it's called Akumajo Densetsu, and it had a different... Um, it had a, it had a different music chip installed into it, and it had, you know, completely different like anything you've ever heard. If you never heard before, y'all y'all gotta go on YouTube and check that stuff out. Yeah. And uh, Konami had several games like that. Namco had several games like that. Uh, Astro Dream Two was one another one from Konami. Uh, Lagrange Point. There it is. Had the full FM chip, and yeah. it sounded like a sound blaster in your NES. Right. Who made that game? I don't even know that game. I don't what even is know that? what the fuck you guys are talking about. That was a RPG from Konami. It was a science fiction RPG. But never came out in English. Never came out in English. Okay. Yeah. But as far as games that people know about, like the Konami games were definitely big ones. And like Gradius 2 never came out in the US. They say because there was yes. a chip on it that was just too expensive at the time to reproduce. It's a very nice looking Famicom game. One of Konami's greatest uh, technical achievements on the NES, as a matter of fact, uh, Konami... Oh man, the eight bit era Konami, man, that was a they were shining at that time. They I tell were you kicking some they ass. Were oh, on yes. fire. They were yeah. fucking bad ass. Oh yeah. Shut your mouth. <laughs> no need to. <laughs> yeah. Cause I know they kicked ass. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yes. So um 
So there's that, there's Konami, there's Sunsoft as well. Of course, Sunsoft was a heck of a developer on the Famicom and the NES as well. Mm-hmm. Freedom yes, Force Sunsoft? is my favorite light gun game that nobody knows about. NES light gun I'm game from ten, Sunsoft. Not, not even ever heard of At least of that. this one came out in English, unlike uh, JJ's The Light. They made a good Batman. I can tell you they made a hell of a good Batman game on the Mega Drive. Blaster Master was kind of fun. About all I can tell. There's Batman, there's Blaster Master, Batman Return of the Joker, Gremlins 2, Mr. Gimmick was another game for the Famicom that had an extra sound chip. Um, that was a really cool... I saw that game much later, I think because of Game Center yeah. CX maybe, but it was a really cool game. Yeah, it was. Game. Uh, Mr. Gimmick in English only came out in Europe. Okay. Yeah. And um, we missed out on it. And also Euphoria test too. That was another... Euphoria just came out, you know, on Virtual Console yeah, like it did. a month ago. Up until now, it was only out in Europe as well. Um, uh, what was the other one? Just Breed. Yeah, Just Breed was the penultimate RPG for the Famicom, by the way. It came out in late 1992 from Enix. It was heavily delayed for a good long time. Mm-hmm. It was a game... Um, it was a very fancy RPG. Uh, the gameplay was kind of like Fire Emblem with a bit more of an RPG element. Just Breed? Just Breed. Ah, okay. Well, and yeah, and actually, so I remember there were a lot of late Nintendo games. This is way after... I had like long since sold my NES, bought a right. Master System, then was on the uh, you SNES. Sold your NES for a Master System? I sold my NES. Dude, that's what another. How? That's another story for what the Master System mistakes. retrospective, which is another twenty-five uh, year anniversary this month, which we'll get into in a future episode. Yeah, but yeah. Kirby's There's not adventure, as much to talk about. So there were a few. <laughs> Come on, now. we could do that in a segment. Come on, <laughs> not at all. Kirby, yeah, Kirby's Adventure was the summer of '93 in the U.S. A little bit earlier in Japan. The last official uh, NES release was Warriors Woods. That was mm-hmm. the summer of 1994. Yes. What was uh, Star Tropics in there? That was fairly Star, Star new, Tropics wasn't Two. Was it was the Star Tropics One and Two? I mean, right. two. Yeah, yeah Star Tropics Two was the summer of '94. Mm-hmm. After that, there was one unlicensed release from Wisdom Tree. Um, the heck was it? I'm blanking on it. Bible now. Buffet. No. Joshua. It, I believe it might have been Sunday Funday. Sunday Funday. Yes, but that, that had a copyright date of 1995 on it. Uh, the last official Famicom release was Adventure Island 4, Takashi Meiji no Bokenjima Yon. And uh, that, shit. that came out in summer of 94. And nowadays, it's kind of funny. Back when I was here in 98, it was a, you know, you could get it for like 200 yen brand new because mm-hmm. they saw a surplus stock. But now, it's not around anymore. And now it's a super expensive game. Those games also, by the way, garbage. Adventure Island. Yeah. I kind of like the first one. I like the first one. Yeah, I'm with Mark on this one. Garbage. Um, I like oh, the first one. You're terrible. So um, <laughs> why don't we why don't we wrap up with our our yep. favorite um, NES game memory? Like uh, a game we we talked a little bit about this before the the podcast, but like a game that is not going to appear on a top twenty games of the NES. That's not going to get talked about this month in the anniversary, but nevertheless, you have some kind of special memory about. Um, Kevin, you want to start us off? Um, oh heck, I was hoping one of you all would be able to start off because I'm trying to. Th- I'm still trying to think about what my individual game would be. Actually, I know what my individual game would be. There all you right. go. We're all set. In the time it Take took it. you to say that, you got it. What is it? It would be Monster Party. That was a good game. What? Yeah. That the, was a very good game. All I know oh, of you. that game is that it was in a lot of video game magazines, and it had like the Wolfmans and the Draculas and a <laughs> bunch of Frankenstein's and a bunch of people. It looked like a piece of shit, like licensed whatever game, just from the ad. I'm, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I'm totally judging a book by its cover no. here, but it was in a lot of ads. I believe didn't Bandai put that game out? Or? Bandai put it out, which was kind of synonymous with garbage back then, right? It I mean, was they didn't a, anything good on the end. It was a Japan-produced game. It's still some question as to who exactly developed it. It wound up never coming out in japan it is a u.s only game yes really and um uh for those of you who don't know is this game where you're basically playing a crazy 
Japan-influenced horror world as a little boy with a baseball bat, and you can transform into a monster as well, and you fight tremendously huge bosses, which are freaky. The, eventually, <laughs> you know, the latter half of the game if is only you were around for box freaky. quotes back then. Yeah. This is a freaky game. This is a freaky game, says Kevin Gifford. What, 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 game what, type, of, what type of game it's is a, it's it It's a side-scrolling it's a platformer, action game. basically. Okay. Yeah. Fester's Quest, if you will. No, that's overhead for the most part. <laughs> mm. Yeah, this was a side scroller. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, right. Fantasy Quest was overhead. I'm thinking 3D. of the Adams Family. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, thinking of the Adams worries. Family on TG16. It's funny. Sure. Before the podcast, I was looking through Jeremy Parrish's um, book here, this uh, NES retrospective thing, and um, I was looking at all these different games, and I was thinking. This game, Monster Party, came out in an era where there were a lot of garbage games that you looked at them in the magazines and they were all terrible. And that was one that I thought was going to be terrible, and I rented it and it was actually quite good. Is there so. a Monster Party write-up in here? Somewhere in there, yeah. But all right, I'll find it while we're somewhere in those four hundred pages, yeah, and give a dramatic. JJ, you're up it. next. Uh, so okay, my game wasn't a game that I actually played as a kid. It wasn't until I started uh, until I was a collector that I played it, but it was. Uh, everybody knows River City Ransom and Super Dodgeball. Sure, mm-hmm. of which course. Is, uh, they're all part of this uh, Neketsu, like Kunio Kun, like this the mm-hmm. series of games. And mm-hmm. I think everybody's seen like the iconic right. characters that star in those games. But they uh, late in the NES, uh, the the NES's life or the Famicom's life at the time, uh, they produced a two player. I think it, it was even four player fighting game. Mm-hmm. What and this is like. Is this just a Japanese-only game? Japanese-only. It yes. would be nice if you mentioned any NES game in this talk oh, about the NES. Well, no. we, we just spent like an hour talking about the Famicom. That's fine. Go up. ahead. Uh, <laughs> so this game... If JJ's not here next week, it's because we fired him. Well, that's Keep fine. talking. Uh, 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 so this game is like... I think I think it's pre-Street Fighter 2 even. What's it called? Uh, it's Neketsu uh, Kakuto Densetsu, which is like, yes. you know, uh, hot-blooded... Net fighting <laughs> yes. legends mm-hmm. okay you want to just like straight translate it uh so like it's this four-player fighting game and and they had like special moves they had team moves where you could join together and do this crazy shit there was like uh stage damage like you could throw guys against spikes and do damage like there was all this like really forward-thinking stuff in this nintendo game that never came out in america but i just like played it one day how did you get access to this at the time by the way like we would just get like a. uh you know, sometimes we would get lucky and get Famicom carts back in the day. Where? How? You would do flea markets and stuff like that a lot, we would right? Do he flea was always hunting and for pawn games. Shops and stuff like that. We were, pawn shops? You every were Famicom every, every weekend we would go I used out. to see them a lot well, in New flea, York. Well, flea markets is, is a little bit easier. And in the South, we were all about flea And markets. what are you playing them on? Well, we had a Famicom. You did? Yeah. yeah, yeah oh, yeah. okay, okay. Fair enough. During, during, during the late era of the NES, there was a lot of that action because rental shops. Right, yeah, got yeah. a lot of multi-cards, got a lot of pirated Super Mario Bros. 3 right. cartridges. Remember those 101 All right, cards? continue. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, this game, uh, it, like, it kind of struck me at the time. I was like, wow, this is, you know, you know Nintendo games is kind of being really simple and basic. And, and maybe the Kunio games were on the more advanced side. But it was just crazy to me, like, just on a historical level, that there was this game that came street, pre-Street Fighter 2 that was not on the same level, obviously, but kind of, like... You know, there was Karate Champ and Street Fighter at the time. Right, you know? right, yeah, sure. Yeah. And this was much more advanced than Karate Champ. And yeah. it was really, really? fun at the it, same more time. More advanced than Karate Champ. Oh, oh way. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, special moves, yeah, you wow. know, finishers, all that sort of thing. Yard Kung yeah. Fu, way beyond. And, and one of the cool things, like, I didn't know it at the time because, like, I couldn't read a lick of Japanese. But, you know, you would enter in your, your details. You would say, like, when you were born and what your blood type is and stuff like that. And it would just make a character 
based on that, and you would have special moves based on what your stats were or nice. whatever your personal. All right, was. fair enough. Um, my uh, two, so I've got a, two. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm kind of cheating. I got a Japanese one. and a, an American one. My American one is also. I don't know how well it ever did in America, but in Japan. So Milan's Secret Castle. I which, knew that was going to be your yeah, yeah, I, know. I thought about that one. That so was a great game. We actually had a conspiracy to, um, briefly, when we used to come to TGS, when me and John were working at Ziff, where we would mention to the Hudson people every single time, like, oh, I heard there was going to be a sequel to Milan's Secret <laughs> Castle. Everybody's talking about a sequel to Milan's Secret Castle. <laughs> Is that coming out? And people would be like, really? Re- <laughs> what, what are you hearing? Like, the, the, the Japanese people like, really? Oh, well, well let, let us take that down. It, I think if we would have stayed in the, in the gaming press, it probably would have happened, a la Kid Icarus. <laughs> I think there probably, right, yeah. Right. There would have been a, uh, but for people who don't know, it was like a weird, it was so bizarrely, I, I was reminded of it, uh, Kevin, when you were talking about Tower of uh, Droga, that... Um, in its own way, it was kind of a Metroidvania. I don't. I mean, it was. It's so it's a platformer kind of, but you you're exploring this castle. You get to different levels of the castle. You shoot bubbles. You go into an individual yeah. room. You shoot bubbles. There's different power ups, but I mean, you do weird shit to cause things uh, the power ups to come out. Like right, you right. just yeah, like yeah, spots yeah. in the wall to open a door. Or exactly. Whatever. And and there was not no a rhyme t- or reason to it. Right. right. It's almost like Castlevania, where you'd like stand in a certain part for long enough and whoop whoop whoop. Like the, right, the right, right, yeah, treasure yeah. chest would come out. It was weird shit that you had to do to get different stuff, and it was very like loosely translated, and it was hard as shit. Yeah. And you had to start over yeah, from the was. beginning all the time. But it was one of those games where you don't even make it past the first stage for the first like right. three weeks that you have. Yeah, the game. I rented that game and I had no idea what I the never fuck f- was going on at the right. time. I never finished it. I may have gone back after the game genie came out with like I did a lot of early NES games that like yeah. killed me. But I don't think I ever finished. So, it. Hey, hey, uh, hey, no, Mark. There was a yeah. there was a continue for that game. Yes, there was. Was that the A and start thing? Like so many Famicom games. I believe you had to hold down right in his start. I may be wrong. With but that. I think it only gave you a few limited uh, continues. Unless Maybe. I'm, yeah, I'm. And, if you and, remember that episode of GameStar CS where he did Mind Secret Castle, he just kept on spamming that thing till God's creation, <laughs> and he messed it up once. Right. right. Yes, you remember. You remember that, you that remember happens. Justin. I think a, a couple times throughout the series, he plays games and totally screws up. So continuing. it's anyway. a fucking evil game. I mean, it's evil from the very pits of hell, but oh, it's yeah. like really, really in an interesting, crazy way, and just so random and esoteric, and just. I mean, it was a huge hit in Japan. Uh, and there were actually. sequels. There were, like, Super Famicom versions. There were sequels and, and pseudo-sequels and, and a whole bunch of different things. But anyway, that's my pick for the NES kind of sleeper hit. And then on the Japanese side, of course, it's it's Sweet Home, which was the, nice. uh, the inspiration nice. for Resident Evil. Yes. Never came out in America. But there is a fan translation out there for it. Right. Um, Did you play through that? No, I've okay. never finished it, but I've played it a bunch just to see all the Resident Evil influences. And I actually saw the movie, which is also like uh, really awesome as a as a fan of Vitami. Uh, but um, I'm a, yeah, I'm a big fan of Vitami as well. Yeah, Juzoi Tommy. I couldn't. I didn't. I had no idea that the same. I, until I saw it in a uh, cult movie store in Chicago, that the same thing that influenced. Uh, the guy who made Resident Evil, Mikami, that made Resident Evil was the guy who also made all these amazing movies, Juzo Otami. Like, it was this weird convergence of everything. It's awesome. Played it a bunch. It's more of a traditional RPG, but it's set in modern day, and it's horror-based, which for for that era was, like, completely 
off the wall and different and it has a lot of the elements that you'll see in in resident evil um the doors and the opening and that kind of business but yep. um really really interesting you separate guys it's got kind of some more action rpg elements puzzle dungeons for lack of a better better word mm-hmm. um anyway that's that's my uh my nice. other pick. and i actually found monster party here in uh Games by Quarterly 5, um, and I just want to say it starts off with, Monster Party is dot dot dot, not a good game. <laughs> no, that, I take issue with that. And that's how it begins, but then it says not in the traditional sense anyway. The jump mechanics are terrible, the hit detection leaves something to be desired, and the graphics are nothing special. In places, the main character makes Simon Belmont look like a gymnast. <laughs> the oh, mu- come on. The music wasn't even very memorable, minus the title screen theme. Oh, that's a lie. But let me give you the turn, but if it fails to be the Citizen Kane of 8-bit video games, it makes a good case for being the budding medium's Planet 9 from outer space. Oh, Oh, and, oh. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and just the last paragraph, uh, even the game's plot, a boy named Billy is whisked away from his nighttime baseball game by some sort of gargoyle griffin named Bert. <laughs> That's right. The bad guy was named Bert. <laughs> that says only he can save the world is ridiculous, but admit it, you smirked when you read that 100% factual synopsis, didn't you? That's right. Thank you, Anthony Rogers. Thank you, Monster Party. Now listen, Anthony Rogers, you're a fine man. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm sure you you do great things through the life, but I must disagree with your uh, criticism of analysis of Monster Party because it is a great game. Yes, fantastic. Check it out if you get the chance. John, you're being quiet. What's your game? Well, I wasn't up yet. Can I can I start? My yeah. game is uh, <clears throat> a game that's very near and dear to my heart. I actually had a list of like ten games, and I wasn't really sure to the last minute what I was going to pick, but uh, it's Fast or as we used to say back in the day, uh, Faxanadu. Uh, really? Uh, I thought yeah. it was Faxanadu. It's Famicom Xanadu. So, it's ah, Faxanadu. Okay. Okay. That game, I loved that game as a kid. That game was awesome. And, and the funny um, thing is, is that in Japan, where we are now, it does not, <laughs> it does not have, it does not have much, it does not have, people don't have a following very, or anything, right? It doesn't have a very high opinion of it, mainly yeah. because, even though it was basically called Famicom Zamadu, <laughs> Zamadu, <laughs> Xanadu, uh-huh. it was so different from the computer version. Right, of it's, it's Famicom version. Well, quote unquote, I guess you would say inspired by Xanadu, a PC game from Falcom, uh, one of my favorite old school developers. But um, the thing about that game is um, it came out at a really awesome time. It came out about a month before Dragon Warrior in the U.S. And so it was, you know, I remember Nintendo Power positioning it almost in a way like this is sort of like it's kind of a taste of RPG, but not really because it's like a side-scrolling, almost like a Simon's Quest kind of a game, right? Like sort of a side-scrolling adventure game sort with a big of. world, but you're going mm-hmm. around building up, you know, collecting items and fighting dragons and things like that. And the music was amazing. The atmosphere for that game was amazing. The box art was awesome and different. It, it was, was one of the very, you know, unique Nintendo mm-hmm. box arts that looked kind of like an old school. It kind like, of reminded me of uh, the original Zelda box art. It was different. Yeah, it was yeah. very unique. And I had a really great time with it. And basically, I ended up finishing that game like a week before Dragon Warrior came out, which was my first like real RPG and one of the big games that influenced my current taste. So it was it was awesome. It is and one of those games that like it would be great if someone went back and relocalized it though. Did you uh did you get uh, Dragon Warrior via subscribing to Nintendo? No, Power? I bought Dragon Warrior on the first day. I was like wow. I, I knew I mean it was fate or something, but I was like the first the minute I saw screenshots of that, which were in the official Nintendo players guide actually. Uh, there was were the first, not. Yes, there was. There, there was were not. A, uh would you like to put money on this now, Mr. Kevin Gifford? Yes, live Dragon, well, you're talking about Dragon Warrior or you're talking about Fazandu? I'm talking about Dragon Warrior. Uh, there is a screenshot of Dragon Warrior. How much money? Because this is really good for me, because I'm positive. This uh, is live. <laughs> 
Dra- basically, there is a screenshot of Dragon Warrior in the official Nintendo Player's Guide um, that actually <laughs> mentions. All right, we got two yen Let's on the table here. Let's bet something more interesting: mint in box sealed copy of uh, <laughs> Dragon Warrior One. Whoever the uh, loser is, are buys you going to produce that for us? Oh, that for the that. winner. Yeah. Okay. Basically, um, uh, I got eight yen here, dog. If any of you have the official Nintendo Player's Guide, scan a copy, scan that page, and send it to us. Uh, and uh, we'll love you forever. So basically, yeah, there was a small thing in the back of the book where it was like future releases, and it was like Dragon yeah, but Warrior. Those have no screenshots. No, uh, I don't know if it had a screenshot. Yeah, but it, it basically yeah, we had were a blurb. Saying screenshots. Oh. Uh, screenshots. I just said Dragon Warriors in the Nintendo Guide. No, all right, all right. Yes, Anyways, we're at three hours. Xanadu. <laughs> so basically, uh, yeah, uh, that was basically the game that kind of got me, you know, excited about RPGs and everything. Yeah, so. well, real quick, what were your other, like, few that you were... Okay, I'm not going to talk about them, but I'll read them real That's quick. That's fine, I went yeah. through the book and looked up all the games that were sort of, like, second Near tier, but awesome. Yeah, Solomon's Key. Spent a lot of time playing mm-hmm. in that game. Right. Uh, Goonies 2. Yeah, uh, great I like game. punching old people in that game. Jackal. <laughs> one of my favorite Konami games that never got much love. The two-player Jeep game with kick-ass music. Um, Iron Sword, Wizards of Warriors 2. DuckTales. Fabio. DuckTales, but I guess past my time. I really uh, talked about uh, DuckTales. Oh, is that when you sold the moon, your the NES moon, already? The moon music. Yeah. DuckTales is a great awesome. game. <laughs> All right, Kevin. That's, sorry. Rygar. Uh, uh, Rygar is an interesting one. When we got our, our NES, my mom, we didn't get Mario with it. And she said, Justin, Josh, that's my brother's name. Pick a game. We went to uh, Children's Palace. I got Kung Fu. My oh, brother God, got Rygar. Children's Palace. Wow. Ooh, Rygar was a good game. I got back. three more. Uh, the Guardian Legend, which is like an awesome like kind of shooter adventure mix. Compile uh, got really good on the PC Engine, but that was a good one, too. What game? Uh, I say Compile. The oh, Compile. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, Legacy of the Wizard, which was uh, another Falcom game. Awesome. Um, not, not as such a video beloved. game name of a game. It is yeah. Legacy of the Wizard. And my Legacy last one, of the Precursor Legend. My last one would be a uh, you know another evidence of me becoming growing up to be an RPG nut, but was Willow. Which was like a kind that, of Zelda no, style that, action no, RPG. That is, that is a hidden classic, most yeah, certainly on the NES. Yes, by Capcom. It's yeah. crazy and totally different than Willow the Arcade Game, which is uh, I never played Willow the Arcade Game. Right. Really? Yeah, oh yeah, mm. really, really great. Mm. And we didn't even right. touch on like any of the main games. I mean, we didn't talk too much about. No, we Mario really could have gone on a several more Metroid. Hours. <laughs> you mentioned atmosphere. Like Metroid was the first game to me that proved like the, right. the atmosphere in a game could what matter. Metroid. All kinds of different stuff. Maybe we'll touch on these things later maybe not um but we won't be back for two weeks so however no matter what because i'm going to be on vacation um kevin gifford sadly won't be here i in spirit though if not in body um, yes i'll be back in houston eating barbecue and roping cows and stuff (laughs) indeed indeed but you'll always be here we'll have kevin phone in time to time yeah i was gonna say i didn't even get to do my kevin gifford dramatically reads notes from resident evil um (laughs) Thing that we'll I do had. that next time. Oh, I even had them printed out. It in. Yeah, yeah. We might have to uh, to 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 do that. But um, so anyway, just to take care of the um, housekeeping stuff. Um, Eight Four Play Podcast. Kevin, give your uh, Twitter name for the nice people in case they want to follow you and hear oh, more. It's, it's just Kevin Gifford. Just imagine Kathy Lee Gifford, except Kevin. There you go. That's what I think of every time I see you. Actually, it's funny that you say that. And uh, John, uh, John TV. And uh, S- yes, S P R S K. 
S P R S K for JJ. I am uh, at Mark MacD. Um, we come out about every other week, sometimes every week. Yeah, we'll be back in two weeks for sure this time because we're not going to be here next week, so we will definitely yeah. be here for two weeks. Right. Um, so I guess until then, uh, Kevin, why don't you give us our new uh, sure to be quoted sign off phrase? Go. Yeah, I don't think that's gonna. <laughs> that's a great one, actually. That's that's gonna make it, but um, it can be in in Japanese Give us an old or video English. Game quote. Yeah, it can be from Tower of Draga. Uh, it can be uh, whatever you think, but uh, it's kind of a for tradition here to put our guest on the spot and uh, have them give us our new greatest sign off. Congratulations, you have rescued Key, and the game is over. Programmed by Evazo End. Music by Zunko Odawa. Dun 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 Da 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 da